How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 147 of X Lapsed. Can you believe it? We're only three episodes away from yet another milestone, the 150th episode. I don't even remember which book we have set to discuss that day, but uh, it's coming. It's coming quick. Um, now, today we're going to be talking about a surprising bright spot in the uh, publication lineup here, a book that... Well, you guys have been with me from uh, from the get-go here. You know I was not a fan of this book early on, but it has uh, grown on me uh, quite a bit. And it is X-Factor. Today we're going to be taking a look at X-Factor Volume 4, Number 6. Now this had a March 2021 cover date, which means it was the, uh, it's the first published in 2021 book that we're discussing uh, here on the show. The story title... Okay. Uh, Sweet Number 6... Skio Mi Nihel Skyr Second Movement. <sighs> okay, written by Leo Williams with art by David Baldion. Colors Israel Silva, letters VCs Joe Caramagna, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Ballesteros, Bisa, Thomas White, Sabolski. A lot of folks. Cover price $4 and went on sale January 6th of this very year, 2021. So. As mentioned, this is the first published in 2021 book that we're discussing here on the show. Now we open with a mostly blank quote page. This time the quote comes from Siren. Now it's, you know, not terribly interesting, but there is something of interest here. Um, Below Siren's name, it looks as though there's a little bit of redaction. A little black bar, you know, we we see those quite a bit uh, in the X-books here. Not quite sure what that's all about just yet. We might have some sort of idea what it means when we get through this issue, but uh, no guarantees. From here, we jump over to the Boneyard, where X-Fact is kind of just chilling out. Uh, Lorna looks like she had a mess of an evening, and she's worried that she might have left a few frantic late-night voicemails for Alex. You know, her on-again, off-again beau, Alex Havoc, you know. I-Boy is so enamored with Prodigy's smooth voice that he begs him to read even the most dry stuff out loud. Something about beekeeping this uh, in this instance. So, okie dokie. Also, John Paul and his husband talk a bit about eating from the bagel bush that X-Factor received as a housewarming present all the way back in the first issue of the series. Now, this is uh, some fun domestic stuff here, but the scene is interrupted by a call to Lorna's phone. Now, she's initially worried that it's Alex, probably wondering why she left so many, many uh, odd you know, voicemails. Uh, but instead, it's actually a, from a number with a blocked caller ID or an unknown caller. She answers it, but it's for Northstar. 
Now he's talking and uh, he needs a pen to take down some notes Which leads to a cute little scene of Dakin, Dakin uh, Noinking the pen that was holding Aurora's hair up in a bun To hold, hand, it, to hand it over to uh, Northstar Now this leads to her hair being let down And it's a fun little exchange here There's some knowing glances It's, it's pretty cute stuff Now Northstar takes down the coordinate, coordinates of X-Factor's next destination And we're off to the races but first, our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. We got Northstar, Prodigy, Prestige, Eyeboy, Polaris, Dakin, Dakin, and Aurora with the Roll Eyes. Back to comics, and our team is somewhere in the UK. And they're here to recover the dead body of Siren. She's also on the cover of the book. Now you might be thinking, hey, didn't we already kill her last issue? And you'd be right. It turns out that this is Teresa's second death in five days. We meet a couple of the UK's finest. Naturally, we get a fellow who seems to be a big-time anti-mutant bigot, and he's tempered by the more open-minded and accepting younger female detective. Uh, Gotta ask. I hate to be that guy, but wouldn't it be interesting if, uh, you know, maybe just once it was the other way around? Huh? Uh, What do I know? Now, X-Factor takes a look at Siren's body. Now, Siren, S-I-R-Y-N, her name, by the way, is one of the most difficult names for me to type. I don't think I've ever done it right the first time. I have similar troubles with Psylocke. I always spell it like Cycloak or Cycloak. <laughs> but Siren is like on a whole other level here. My fingers just cannot type that name. It's like S-I-Y-R-N. There's so many different ways that I I want to spell siren. It's just a pain in the ass. (laughs) Um, Anyway, there's a a British forensics examiner here as well who's attempting to take samples from Terry's corpse. Well, X-Factor doesn't like that one bit, and so Dakin Dakin, uh, pops his claws and Eyeboy hops in to use his microscopic vision. Now, what Eyeboy sees is... Well, it's interestingly laid out uh, and depicted here on the page, but really not anything I can draw any conclusions from. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm not supposed to see what he's saying. I don't know. Uh, Dakin Dakin uses his hyper-keen senses to suggest that Terry smells like cold medicine and cheap chocolate. And I think that's what some folks call date night. Uh, Amazing Baby pops in, which freaks out the forensics tech to the point where they faint. Eyeboy turns to Prodigy to ask if he can see everything he can regarding the wee pre-autopsy he's performing. Prodigy can, in fact, see, and it would appear that they might have found something out here. Over to the side, Polaris attempts to make this all about her. Now, she's sulking that Teresa, her friend, hasn't explained whether or not she's been going through anything. I mean, considering that she's died twice within a week, it stands to reason that there's... Maybe something going on now. Uh, Northstar comforts Lorna, assures her that Terry is her friend, and also that they'll get to the bottom of this sooner rather than later. Northstar then turns to Dakin, Dakin, and gives him a surprisingly decent pep talk. He basically tells him that he doesn't think much of him, but he's hopeful that Akihiro can and will prove him wrong. And I gotta say, that's probably about as polite a compliment as you're gonna get from the Boubier. Uh, Rachel collects Teresa's body and prepares to take it back to the healing gardens for a more complete autopsy. Prodigy asks her to hold up for a moment because he'd like to go with. 
Now, as this is going on, Polaris is busy physically abusing the bigoted male detective because why not confirm all of his fear and hatred by hoisting him up in the air and slamming him down to the ground? Rachel tells David to check with Northstar to see if it's cool with him to come, and he explains to John Paul that he wants to chat up Dr. Reyes to make himself more useful to the team in a medic role. You see, this way, he'll be able to deduce cause of death right there on the spot. Northstar thinks this is a pretty good idea, and he gives it the old thumbs up. Now, as X-Factor go to take their leave, we get one more parting shot from the bigoted detective, which leads to Dakin Dakin popping his claws to scare him. Northstar wonders if X-Factor might need some official identification as they're going to be dealing with global law enforcement, to which iBoy is overly excited at the possibility of wearing a really cool badge. We shift scenes to the Healing Gardens, and to a very interesting scene. This is going to be our big takeaway scene here. Now, we got Prodigy, and he's sheepishly watching Cecilia Reyes perform this autopsy. She... Reyes actually seems quite uncomfortable with this. Uh, Rachel's there as well. Uh, She suggests that she could just email them the reports when she's done, right? Now, she finally stops to ask David, you know, what in the hell do you want? Why are you here? Because it's clear he's got some sort of burning question on the tip of his tongue here. Well, David kind of clams up, goes scared rabbit, doesn't answer, but Rachel does. Rachel pipes in with David's question, and uh, I tell you what, it's a goodie. She says, quote, he wants to ask you about what happens to Krakoans after this part, meaning the autopsy. Which is to say, what does she do with the bodies? Now, we know Krakoa has no graveyards. We remember hearing that during uh, Call Me Kate's, you know, funeral pyre, Viking funeral, whatever the hell it was. So how do dead mutants get dealt with? Huh. Now, Reyes is a bit cagey with her answer at first, and seems more disturbed by why David would even ask this in the first place. Well, it seems like, uh, it seems like they've come to an understanding, because we jump ahead, and we're back to the Boneyard, where Prodigy informs the team that he is going to start a body farm there. <clears throat> Northstar is decidedly not a fan of this idea. Uh, basically, David is going to be bringing cadavers to the Boneyard in order to study them. He's going to try to track mutant decomposition, which has never been a thing to track before now. And as such, stands to reason that it might be some pretty groundbreaking and helpful research. I, I really I really like this angle here because it's not something I ever thought about. Uh, you know, this is far from an obvious, uh, you know, story thread here, and, and I really, really like it. Uh, North Star, well, he doesn't like it. And it's funny, as, uh, as he's arguing with David... Uh, Northstar's husband, I think his name is Kyle. Uh, We should really commit that name to memory. But the husband is looking on, and he's chuckling at how much Jean-Paul sounds like a dad right now. Whatever the case, it looks like there's going to be a body farm at the Boneyard, so uh, I guess we're going to have to update that cross-section schematic that we saw in the previous issue. Now we jump to later yet, where X-Factor is questioning the newly resurrected, again, Siren. Now, what they really want to know is, how can someone with the ability to fly fall out of the sky to their death twice within one week? To which Terry is wildly defensive. And uh, she even goes as far as to blame her flight dysfunction on being drunk. Uh, Teresa is a recovering alcoholic, by the way. And uh, 
Hope you all had a had a great St. Patrick's Day. It's St. Patrick's Day as I record this. I got a stomach full of uh, soda bread right now. Now, X-Factor really isn't getting anywhere with their interrogation, and Siren has had just about enough of their questioning. And so she gets up to leave. She very nearly walks past a great big window, which would have given her a really good view of the new corpse garden, which would appear as though actually contains her own previous body. So, uh, yeah, that might get a little sticky with the explanation. Uh, It's worth noting that Rockslide's body is also here, which... I thought Rockslide went to pieces, but maybe not. Uh, there's also four other bodies, none of whom I can pinpoint. One of them has like one of those like Robin Hood, like Van Dyke beards. I don't know who it is. Um, if anybody who is listening knows who some of these characters might be, one of them we just see their foot. So that one's going to be a tough one to identify. But uh, there are a couple of faces here, just none of them really uh, ring a bell. Now, the team tries to settle Terry down, but she lashes out. She is so tired of this. She assures them that both of her recent deaths were nothing more than accidents, and then she goes to stomp away. Now here, X-Factor's powers combine in a new and interesting way. They kind of put Terry through a sort of lie detector situation. Now Eyeboy uses his eyes to observe Terry's body language, and he deduces she's lying. Rachel then uses her telepathy, and she also knows that Terry's lying. Dakin Dakin uses his keen senses, and he, too, knows she's lying. Finally, Prodigy uses his ability to glom off of nearby mutants' powers in order to maybe do a little check and balance on the situation. And yeah, his vote makes it unanimous. Siren is most definitely lying. Now, Polaris goes to chase after her, and Siren is quite dismissive. She tells Laura to just worry about queuing up bodies and leave the heroing stuff to the big guns. To which, Polaris reminds her that she is, in fact, a big gun. They reference a story that I can barely remember from the old Peter David X-Factor Investigations volume, um, and at which time Siren's word balloons change. Uh, The text turns red and the bubbles get more uh, bubbly. She tells Lorna to leave her alone, and tells her that should X-Factor try and investigate any of her deaths again, Lorna is to sabotage any and all attempt. It looks as though Lorna is mesmerized via Siren's sonic hypnosis, which is a power I can hardly even remember her having. Uh, Polaris goes blank in the face and agrees. Siren walks off with a very evil look on her mug. We wrap up the issue with an info page, and it's a text message exchange between Prodigy and Windancer. Here, David talks a little bit about his death. We, you know, we know that he died and came back. He says that it occurred around the same time as Loa and Rain's deaths. And I'm going to have to assume that those deaths occurred during my ex-hiatus. So I cannot be of any help in that situation. If anybody listening has any insight, please feel free to let me know. This is like one of those situations where researching almost feels like cheating. Because uh, it's like, I don't want to portray myself as knowing these things when I actually don't. Uh, Next episode, we're going to be looking at the Hellions, the flagship book of this run. (laughs) But uh, how about we talk about the issue at hand here? Uh, Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Never thought I would have come around this strongly to X-Factor, especially after, what was it, issue two? I was not a fan of that at all. Um, But we do have some takeaways here, and it's funny how like the main 
story thread here. Uh, Siren, you know, she gets the cover. A lot of this is focused on Siren's uh, multiple deaths here. And that's kind of like the least interesting part. Because there's so much other stuff going on here. There's so much stuff to talk about that the Teresa stuff kind of just falls to the wayside here. Especially since we don't get a whole lot... um, we don't get a whole lot concrete about it. We know that she is, it looks like she's under some sort of control. Um, we did see on that quote page that there was a redaction under her name, so maybe she is reporting to someone, or maybe she is just being controlled by someone. I mean, there are things we can talk about here. Um, like, we can go back to the free comic book day issue. We had that card, I think it was the... Uh, I don't remember which card it was. It was the card with all the characters on it. <laughs> but uh, in the free comic book day issue, uh, we saw Banshee on that card. But when we got to Exosword's creation, Siren was in his spot. You know, nobody mentioned anything changing, but she did replace him here. And I part of me wonders, did something happen to her while she was, you know, on Otherworld? While she was uh, trying to avenge her father being, uh, you know, beaten up and... Nearly killed by the creepy summoner and the horseman, uh, you know, at the at the very outset of the event. Maybe something happened to her there. Maybe she is infected by some sort of a menti demon. I mean, who knows? Stranger things have happened. But let's talk about some other stuff here. I know I had some fun with uh, iBoy uh, getting overly excited about the possibility of wearing badges, <laughs> you know. But... It's it's a really good idea <laughs> to do that. I mean, we have X Factor who are dealing with um, all sorts of law enforcement here. If they are the you know the one stop shop for um, confirming, verifying mutant deaths on the planet, stands to reason they're going to be running into and running afoul of many different um, aspects of law enforcement, just like they did here in the UK. And it's funny, something that they talked about while they were talking to the uh, to the detectives was the potential for, like, foul play and criminality in Siren's uh, demise there. Was she murdered? You know, that's something that I think a normal human detective would ask, you know, whereas the mutant world is a little bit different than that. And uh, we're just wondering, like, how she fell out of the sky here. And especially when she comes back and she assures everyone that it was an accident, it's, you know, she just, she was, she had too much to drink that night. That's, that's, that might fly. It, it doesn't fly in the mutant world. It doesn't fly in Krakoa. I mean, they ran her through the lie detector and deduced that she was lying. But I think those rules might be a little bit more hard and fast in human law, right? They see this, they want a full investigation. Then here swoops in X Factor and they're like, no, nah, we're just taking the body. Peace out. We're good. It's uh, it's an interesting thing because uh, it, I don't want to say it's counterproductive, but it uh, doesn't. It might not inspire a whole lot of confidence in the rest of the world's law enforcement to see the mutants kind of just take care of their own and not really pay any mind to the whys and hows. Just more the okay, this is done. We can fix it. It's interesting. So maybe maybe iBoy will get his badge and uh, X-Factor will be duly deputized uh, by some sort of world power outside of Krakoa that, that recognizes them as a legitimate uh, law enforcement organization. Um, while on the subject here, I mentioned it a little bit during the synopsis here, but uh, 
We have two detectives. One is an old man. The other one is a young woman. The old man is a horrible bigot. The young woman is wildly open-minded and uh, just a really good person. I, I feel like uh, that, that that's kind of played out. <laughs> I mean, we can see it coming from a mile away, and I know why they do it, but it's a little tired. I think it would be a little bit more interesting if the roles were reversed here. You have a... Uh, have a fresh-faced, you know, recent college graduate who has a problem with mutants, and then you have the old, uh, the old salt on the uh, on the force being like, no, no, they're good people. I mean, I'm not saying either one is wrong or right, but it, it at least it would kind of it would get one past the goalie, so to speak. It would just be like, wow, I wasn't expecting that, because this is exactly what I was expecting, and this is exactly what we got. Let's get to our main takeaway here, which is. The scene with Prodigy and Cecilia Reyes. What happens to the bodies? Where do they go? And I mean, there are there are a few things we can think of. I mean, there are some characters with uh, like vampiric tendencies on on Krakoa right now. We have Emplate, right? Uh, Monet Monet's brother. He is a sort of a vampire, right? He feeds off of marrow. Like, not the character Marrow. I, I suppose maybe the character Marrow, but in this situation, like, Bone Marrow. And uh, I wonder if, you know, these dead bodies are just, like, given to the vampiric characters there. It's like, okay, you can feed off this. Or are they fed to Krakoa? Would, would Krakoa be able to get any energy out of dead bodies? I don't know. Uh, I was always, you know, I always figured that he drained bodies, right? So I don't know if a body was dead if there was anything left to drain there. But it's a very interesting question, and it's not something I ever thought about before. And and I should have, because we did have Call Me Kate's funeral, where they mentioned there won't be a graveyard on Krakoa. And, it's, and then you think, it's like, wow, well, we've seen a lot of bodies come and go, you know? We, we did read that when they couldn't bring Call Me Kate back, they just, uh, <laughs> they just left the bodies out to sea. They, wa- they let them go out to sea. So, I mean... I suppose maybe we could think that that's what they're doing with the dead, with their dead. But I mean, that's uh, we talk about disrespect to the dead as it is. That's I don't know. It seems like even more so. But this takes us to the next point of prodigy learning uh, so much more about um, decomposition here. It's something that we may be able to refer to as like the Krakoa effect. You know how. How different is it for a body to decompose on Krakoa than it would in New York City or in Canada or in the UK? Is there something to Krakoa? Is there something to living in Krakoa that might expedite decomposition or slow down decomposition? Does it affect the way a body does de- you know, decompose here? It's just a very interesting Food for thought that I, I never considered before, and I, I like the idea of Prodigy training under uh, Cecilia Reyes here to become more of a team medic, to be able to make these calls in the field. I, I feel like it, it's not only responsible for the team, but it's also responsible in the storytelling way, where we don't have to cut to Krakoa for a scene of Cecilia Reyes going, "Oh yeah, she fell out of the sky." We don't need to do that. If uh, if David is you know trained enough to be able to make those deductions, we can we can just you know you know pop 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 and just keep going, tell the story here without uh, without having to break back to the healing gardens for uh, for a check in. 
So I think that could be very, very cool here. And one more thing I want to say about this issue. Um, actually, two more things. First, uh, I'm really coming around to David Baldion's art, which is another thing I never thought I would do. But uh, it's good. It's It's different. It's stylized, but it's also very, very good. Um, I, I really sold him short during our first few issues here, where here it's a, it's perfectly fitting the tone, and it's a, he's he's really, really hitting it hard in the facials here. I mean, the, these characters are so emotive, and you don't even need the word balloons a lot of the times. You could just tell what they're thinking, and that's really. I mean, I'm not an artist, but I could assume that that's very, very hard to do. But he does it here, and it's very, very good. And like I said, it fits the story, it fits the tone, and it fits this group of characters. Now, now the other thing I wanted to get to is, last time we discussed an issue of X-Factor, I mentioned that it was, oddly enough, like the most traditional <laughs> X-Men book that we have right now, which doesn't seem like it should be a thing, considering, you know, how far out it could be and how uh, current year it can be. But I talked last issue about how we had, you know, a quiet issue, a post-crossover quiet issue that started bubbling a bunch of subplots, which is, you know, the bread and butter of of classic traditional X-Men comics and, and just comics storytelling. And it was very surprising to me. Well, here we are with issue six, where once again... This might just be the most traditional book we have right now. Something I'd like to point our attention to here is the fact that every character in our team here, and it's it's a wild little ensemble, but they all get a moment here, right? Even if it's a small moment, it's still far more than what we get sometimes from our current year X books here. A lot of times we introduce characters just so they can stand in the background. They can act as wallpaper here they actually matter. We, we, we are actually spending little bits of time with each of these characters. They're each getting a moment to say something, to do something, to have a furtive little glance at one another. It's very, very well done, and I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. It's, it makes it feel like all of these characters matter. They're all here for a reason. They're not just here to stand, you know? Uh, this isn't... You know, we, we got to get Cyborg into the Justice League. we got to get Cyborg in the Justice League. Okay, what are we going to have him do? Oh, he's going to stand at the computer. Oh, is he going to do anything else? No, nah, no, nah, he'll just stand at the computer. We'll pop in on him every three issues because he'll say something to somebody. This isn't like that at all. This All these characters are, are they, they fit. I mean, even, even uh, what's his face? Amazing Baby got a scene here, <laughs> you know? It's just really, really well done. Um, I can't believe I'm saying this, but if you're not reading X-Factor... Do yourself a favor and try out X Factor. I think you might be just as surprised as I am at just how uh, how good and how traditional it is. Uh, if you're a longtime X Men fan, then this should be right up your alley. So, big thumbs up for this issue. Looking forward to more. I hope you are as well. But let's head over to the mailbag here. We got some stuff to talk about. Now we're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Sword S W O R D number one. Now, Damien says, This issue felt like it was regurgitating Jonathan Hickman's pitch for the series. All the memos and diagrams feel like they came directly from the head of X. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. Um, I came away from S.W.O.R.D. Um, uh, more positive than I thought I'd be. 
because I did flip through Sword when I first got it in my uh, in my mail, you know, my my DCBS pack. Uh, because you know, sometimes if you're still buying physical comics, you can tell some of them are heftier than others, and like Sword. Sword was one of those books you didn't even need to look at the price of. You knew it was going to be overpriced because it was heavy. <laughs> it was a heavy book. Sometimes, sometimes we get books that are five bucks, and they don't feel much heavier than the than the three the four dollar book. Sword felt heavy, and so knowing that I was going to have to synopsize, analyze, and discuss it, I'm like, oh man, what am I in for? So I, I flipped through it, and yeah, there's a lot of memos in there. A lot of diagrams, and it felt very much like we were getting a a return to you know the Hoxpox style here. And as much as we liked the Hoxpox style, th- this was a space story, and uh, I was a little trepidatious here. But I did come around to it. I, I came out of it much more positive than I ever expected to. Now, Damien continues. I'm not a sci-fi fan, so I find a lot of this nonsense distances me from the book. Easy for me to say. Of course, as you said, there was some great character work to pull me into the story, so I'm both attracted and repelled. I suppose that's an appropriate response to a Magneto story. (laughs) Very, very well said. And, I mean, we're in full agreement here. The space stuff I could do without, but the character work is very, very good. And I think a lot of you know that uh, I really didn't want to go into this praising Al Ewing, but uh, I have to, because this is, uh, I, I gotta call him as I see him here. This is very, very good table setting and uh, storytelling and interactions between a weird, weird crew of characters. Uh, Damien continues, I do enjoy seeing some of the lesser lights of the X-Universe given a spotlight. It's great to see Magneto expressing a similar response to me. Excited to see Peepers and Frenzy, but disdainful of Fabian Cortez. I'm a little confused about Taki, though. He appears to be a full-grown adult. Does this mean that Inferno was 10 to 15 years ago in the sliding timescale? Artie and Leech don't appear to be any older than they were back then. Maybe we're just meant to ignore it. Yeah, I think that's it. We do. Uh, we are supposed to be ignoring that, I think, here. Um, or maybe they just don't know. I mean, we do have a whole lot of editors here, but it's funny. Every time we see Emma Frost on, on panel, she looks completely different. She has a different haircut in every single, every single book she's in. So I don't know how much uh, continuity copping is going on and how much control, editorial control is going on to where, I mean, a character we don't see ever in uh, in WizKid, he's he's a grown up now, and maybe the next time we see him, he'll be a kid, and no one will uh, no one will be allowed to ask what happened to him because we're not supposed to notice those things. But uh, I I'm with you there. I like uh, Magneto's. Uh, <laughs> I love the way that Magneto kind of hammed up his reaction to Peepers. He's like, oh my my good friend, my good friend, just like just really like sticking the dagger into Fabian Cortez, who wants to be Magneto's kind of lackey uh, during this scene here, and just really really driving the point home that like Cortez doesn't mean nothing. <laughs> He's even gonna go and you know blow sunshine up Peeper's skirt. You know, it's really really well done. Uh, Damien wraps up with anyway until Jonathan Hickman is revealed to be the head of ten. <laughs> Make my next lapsed. I think I think it was you, Damien, who said that uh, we're probably going to find out at some point that for all these years we've been reading The Ten Men. <laughs> and 
I mean, I, I don't even want to put that out into the uh, into the ether because I could see it happening. <laughs> but thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there on Sword. I was uh, really not sure how that one was going to go for plenty of reasons, and um, I'm glad we're coming out of it more positive than negative. Um, still a little trepidatious with the uh, King uh, King in Black storyline we got coming up, but. Uh, yeah, we'll worry about that another day. Uh, we got one more. It's from Andrew Franklin, and he's talking about X-Men number 16, which we just talked about last episode. He says, Assuming Sinister on Krakoa has none of the memories of the Sinister killed by Tarn the Uncaring in Hellions number 6, Sinister wouldn't even know to be wary of Tarn. Now, in X-Men number 16, we learned that Tarn the Uncaring is part of the Iraqi... Variation on the Quiet Council He has a seat on that council here And during the discussion I had commented that uh, You know, Tarn knows things You know, uh, Sinister He set up his team He got his DNA And then he killed his team So they wouldn't know anything They'd be resurrected and not have memories Of being turned on or, or betrayed Well, Tarn Saw a lot of that go down Well, He saw the stuff that went down in Amenth or Araco Or wherever the hell we were So he saw that So he might have Sinister at a disadvantage here uh, Now Andrew is suggesting that Since it was Sinister's clone that died Sinister Prime might not even know He might not know who Tarn is Upon seeing him here Which is a very good point But as I mentioned last episode I'm not sure what the deal is with the sinister hive mind Seems like sometimes It's in effect, sometimes it's not So I don't know what How they're going to play it here I'm confident that however No matter how they play it, it's going to be well done If it's, you know, if it's in the Hellions book anyway So I just wonder um, You know, is this a hive mind Situation or is this a uh, Something else altogether now, Andrew continues, Imagine the first meeting of the two councils when Tarn realizes that Sinister is alive and well on Krakoa and has seemingly no knowledge of their deadly encounter. That would make for an interesting situation, having sassy Sinister all bluster and ego without knowing that Tarn might be a real threat who has some damning information about him. And if Tarn is the equivalent of Sinister, who knows what experiments he has done with the remains of that cloned Sinister. Great points, and now I'm hoping that I'm wrong I'm hoping that Sinister doesn't have the hive mind here And uh, I would love to see him all, like you said here, full of bluster and ego Yeah, it's you, nice to meet you And Tarn's like, yeah, I know you (laughs) As a matter of fact, I have one of you And here he is, covered in, you know, spikes and and, and slime and drool and and, uh, spiky bones Uh, That could be really, really cool (laughs) I think that could be really funny, actually. Uh, Andrew continues, I won't be surprised if it's revealed that Sinister's collection drones had recorded the whole encounter for Sinister to watch, but still, it would be interesting to see Sinister without the upper hand for once with someone who could be in a position as a real threat to him. And that that made me think of something else here. Um, what if Sinister's uh, you know little uh, DNA mosquitoes did record it and Sinister doesn't even realize it? I mean that would be funny too, having you know his own his own tool of collection be his undoing. Uh, if the Quiet Council finds out, all interesting stuff here, which is great. Uh, that those you know him, uh, what's it, Tarn the Uncaring and Idol, 
being named as uh, Iraqi ring of whatever the hell uh, quiet council members opens up so many possibilities, so many interesting opportunities for uh, for very fun stories. So definitely looking forward to that. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. And that is where we're going to leave the mailbag for today, but we're not done yet. You see, we're getting closer and closer to being caught up, like real time, which... If you would have asked me back on September 1st, uh, 2020, when we started this show, when we'd be current, uh, I would have said, oh, before Christmas. No. <laughs> no, we were probably about a month or so away, maybe maybe a month and a half away from being up to date to where my short box of Hox, Pox, Docs, Rock, Socks books will be completely empty until I get my month, once a month shipment. So, considering that we are getting so close to real time, I thought it might be an interesting thing to do to take a flip through the old Marvel previews and uh, look at the solicitations coming up for... Well, we're in March right now as uh, as I'm recording this. It's St. Patrick's Day, actually, and uh, I figured it'd be cool to maybe look a month ahead. You know, maybe we'll plan our shopping lists together here for, uh, for following along. So we are going to look at Marvel Free Previews number 8, which had a February 2021 cover date for April 21, 2021 shipping. And we're going to see what we can see about what is uh, coming down the pike for us here. Now the covers for this uh, previews are decidedly non-eccentric. Um, we get Venom number 200 and Black Panther number 25, respectively. But... Let's cut inside here and look at the X stuff. Now, the big X book of the month looks to be Way of X. And it gets three pages of coverage in this issue. And from the art we get here, it looks as though this book will feature, uh, in addition to Nightcrawler, of course, um, Pixie, Blink, Loa, DJ, and Dr. Nemesis. Now, I'm only guessing that it's DJ because we did see him... Actually, just in the last issue of X Factor, during the uh, during the party that they had to uh, you know ring in the reign of X, I guess the character here has headphones, so I'm assuming it's DJ. I hope I'm not profiling a guy with headphones as being a guy who can do music stuff, but I think it's DJ. Now, uh, Doctor Nemesis, it is Simon Spurrier writing this, and he does seem to like him some Doctor Nemesis. I remember he wrote the X-Club book, uh, the miniseries, back in the long ago, which featured the X-Men's science team. And during it, he used a fraption. You all remember fractions? You remember those? Those really cringy Matt Fraction captions where he they'd introduce each character and then have like a pithy little descriptive comment. Yeah, those were fractions. Um, and I remember Dr. Nemesis's fraption was... Science bastard. Mm, that's some uh, that's some retweet bait for you right there. Um, anyway, now Way of X number one will be naturally a five dollar book. Uh, Bob Quinn is listed as our artist, and from the pages that we see here, he's quite a good one. I don't think I've ever heard of him before, but this is some really good looking stuff here. I'm I'm looking forward to this uh, for a lot of reasons actually. Let's get into the solicit. Mutant kind has built a new Eden, but there are serpents in this garden. I don't think we need to explain that. Some mutants struggle to fit in. Some mutants turn to violence and death. And the children whisper of the patchwork man singing in their hearts. 
Only one mutant senses the looming shadows. Snared by questions of death, law, and love, only Nightcrawler can fight for the soul of Krakoa. Only he and the curious crew he assembles can help mutants defeat their inner darkness and find a new way to live. Now, uh, this is a book I'm looking forward to. Um, Though, since it has to do with religion and it is a current year Marvel book, I do worry a little bit about... Things like sensitivity and subtlety. (laughs) Um, I suppose we're going to have to wait and see on that. Uh, Something I appreciate about this book is that it feels far less like bloat than some of the other books that we've gotten to this point. Um, It would appear as though this actually has a reason to exist. You know, uh, providing some answers to some of our long-standing burning questions uh, ever since The Crucible, right? Uh, We saw the Crucible, and at the end of that, Nightcrawler suggests that maybe he should uh, start a religion. And I think a lot of those pieces are going to fall into place in Way of X, and I'm definitely looking forward to it. Another book in the previews, we got X-Men Legends number three. This is not part of our Hox, Pox, Doc, Socks, Rocks purview, but it is an X-book, so we'll look at it uh, at least in a little bit. Uh, this issue will be a throwback to the Simons's run on X-Factor. The solicit goes something like this. The mutants once known as the original X-Men now fight the good fight as the mutant team X-Factor. Together with their mysterious sentient spaceship ship and the newly transformed Archangel, they've defeated Cameron Hodge and foiled Apocalypse's scheme. But as ship starts to malfunction, Apocalypse's true plan unfolds. And there's a notation here that says that this story takes place before X-Factor number 43. So, that puts it right after the team has that run-in with Alchemy, who was the uh, winner of that uh, Create a Mutant contest that they ran probably a year or two before that. And I think the character was originally supposed to start uh, star in the uh, New Mutants, an issue of the New Mutants, maybe even join the New Mutants, but... Uh, well, it didn't quite go that way, so they, they put poor Alchemy in a two-parter in X-Factor, and uh, he was seen very seldom since. But after that story, um, the X-Factor team was swept away to the Judgment War by the Celestials. Now, this is what I refer to as like my back-issue wheelhouse, because these were the very first back-issues of an X-Book that I bought. Um, the X-Factor 40s were some of the absolute cheapest books in the bins, <laughs> and as such... As a 12-year-old fan, I snapped them up. Um, so I'm definitely interested in checking this out. Though, I mean, I'm not sure we'll ever actually get around to talking about it at length on the show. It is something I'm interested in checking out. Uh, the cover looks like, uh, well, just about any X-Factor cover from that era. It actually looks kind of like an homage to X-Factor number 1 with the characters' poses, but the characters are in more contemporary, for the time, costumes. Uh, Cyclops is without head sock, which isn't accurate, but uh, I like that look better, so I guess we'll just allow it. Uh, another book we got is Sword Number 5. Now, the caption here is, On Krakoa, Fabian Cortez and the Quiet Council discuss the rules of murder. But in space, the murders have already begun, and the killer has a connection to Cortez he'd never suspect. The, cover, the color may be gold, but this, my friends, is pure giallo. Now, giallo means yellow in Italian, and is often used in reference to cheap paperback mystery novels in Italy, which often come with yellow covers. We learn something new every day. Uh, This cover is indeed yellow, 
and it has a dead lizard man in the background. Um, and, you know, it's solicits like this that make me kind of wary of reading solicits at all. Uh, even though it is vague, I do feel like we've kind of been spoiled <laughs> on something that's to come. I don't know that I have any better ideas of trying to sell comics, but uh, yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, we also have Excalibur number 20. This one gets a very small blurb. Um, it is, an invisible thread is loose on the island of Krakoa, unseen, unheard, undetectable by any, except Excalibur. Hey, does this mean we get an issue of Excalibur that isn't in Otherworld? I might have to buy two copies of this one just to uh, just to vote with my wallet twice. Um, now, this cover features Rogue front and center. Behind her to the left, our left, her right, is Betsy Britton. To our right, her left, is Psylocke. Uh, well, even if we're not in Tired Old Otherworld, we're still going to be dealing with a tired old concept, aren't we? Oh, well. Uh, next, Marauders number 19. This is another small blurb. It goes a little something like this. As the pressure pours on in Madripoor, the, Ma- the Marauders prepare to pillage and plunder as a proper pirate pleases. Prepare to pillage and plunder as a proper pirate pleases. Try saying that a few more times. Um, now, this one sounds fun. This one sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, the cover features Call Me Kate, Callisto, and Bishop. Uh, Kitty is sitting on a crate waving a pirate flag, or the Marauder's flag, basically. So that's a goodie. Um, Next up, Wolverine number 11, which gets a full page. And it gets the caption, Snickter view with a vampire. (laughs) Okay, okay, we'll allow it. Uh, Worth noting, uh, Scott Eaton will be in the artist chair for this one, so we'll get neither of our regular Wolvie artists here. Uh, the caption is, Wolverine takes the fight to the Vampire Nation in a quest to stop Dracula's plan to co-opt his mutant healing factor. But what sacrifices and moral compromises must be made before the humans and mutants see the dawn? Eh. Well, I guess we're still doing the vampire story. Uh, the cover features Wolverine, Omega Red, and uh, that vampire hunter, What's-Her-Face, who we met all the way back in Wolverine number one. Don't know if they're all on the same side here. It kind of looks like they are. So maybe Wolverine and Omega Red will put their differences aside to fight Dracula. I guess we'll see. Next up, Children of the Atom, number two. A local prison riot is quickly turning into an, es- into an escape, and the only ones who can stop them are a bunch of high schoolers. The strangest teens of all are on the case. Guess starring the Avengers? Oh, gross. Um... Well, I, I guess in fairness, I don't think we've seen the Avengers in the next book since Professor X's telepathic message back during Hoxpox. So I guess it's uh, it's, it's about time, right? Where have you? What took you so long, Avengers? Come and screw up our books. Um, next, Cable number 10. As Cable and company draw closer to the secret of the missing child, a reckoning draws ever closer. And this cover features Cable, both the kid and old man version, uh, the cuckoo that he's crushing on, and Domino. And I'm going to guess here that we're back to the business of the cult, which, hey, that is something we've been looking forward to. If uh, if the uh, old Festival of Swords didn't get in the way, we would have uh, probably been there by now. Next, X-Force number 19. The only way to battle the nightmare is on its own turf. Sweet dreams, Quentin Quire. Eh... Uh, now, worth noting, uh, Gary Brown is listed as artist, so we'll get no Kassara this time out. 
Uh, the cover features Jean Grey, who seems to appear more in this book since quitting the team than she ever did before. Uh, she's on her knees with a bunch of nightmarish versions of X-Force streaming out of her head. It's a very nice-looking cover. Next up, New Mutants number 17. Now, our blurb reads, With a mutant child lost in Otherworld... Oh, come on. Really? We get a break from Otherworld and Excalibur, and we gotta go there now? And another lost kid? Do we have one of those in cable? Okay, okay. With a mutant child lost in Otherworld, it's up to the new mutants to find and extract him, without losing themselves in the process. Meanwhile, on Krakoa, Warlock makes a friend, Wolfsbane makes a friend, Magic makes some enemies. Oi, okay. Next, Avengers number 44. This is the finale to the Enter the Phoenix storyline, which is something that I'm only mentioning as a completionist. I'm not actually buying or reading it. Um, And to be honest, it feels like Marvel has kind of co-opted the Phoenix entity from the X-Men fiefdom and made it a more all-encompassing Marvel threat. So it probably barely even registers for us anymore. I just figured I'd mention it in case anyone out there is interested in tracking the Phoenix. If you want the Phoenix, it's in Avengers now. Finally, we have Runaways, number 35. Wolverine and Pixie's guest stint on Runaways comes to a close, but does that mean Molly Hayes' time as a runaway does too? Now, we will be discussing the three-part Wolverine-Pixie stint on Runaways on the show. Um, they'll probably get full episodes each issue, and the first part is tentatively scheduled for episode 161. So we're not, we're not, it's not like right around the corner, but it's not far off either. We will be covering... Runaways 33, 34, and 35. And that's that for the solicits here. It's worth noting, we get no solicits for X-Men, X-Factor, and Hellions. So, uh, two of our uh, good books and an (laughs) X-Men will not be coming out in April. Now, for those planning your trips to the comic shop, let me help you out here. On April 7th, you're going to want to bring $12 to the store to buy Excalibur number 20, Marauders number 19, and Runaways number 35. On April 14th, only $8. I mean, of course, you're going to want tax as well. Uh, 14th is Children of the Atom number 2 and Wolverine number 11. April 21st is a $13 week. Sword number 5, Way of X number 1, and X-Force 19. April 28th is another $12 week. Yeah, Cable number 10, New Mutants number 17, and X-Men Legends number 3. So that is a $45 month, 48 if you're going to pick up that Phoenix issue of the Avengers. So uh, for about 50 bucks, uh, $50, oh boy. No wonder so many people use a Marvel Unlimited nowadays. Oh boy, uh, this is just the X-Men books. This doesn't count the Skadey 800 Avengers books and Spider-Man books and everything the other companies are putting out. This is, this is an expensive hobby, isn't it? This is a damn expensive hobby. But that's where we're going to leave it. We're not going to be doing solicits every episode, just uh, probably probably once a month, just to try to keep ourselves up to date here and know what's coming down the chute. And... Uh, It'll also help me to make sure my orders are, are as complete as they uh, as they need to be to uh, make sure we're on top of things and I don't have to make last-minute runs to the shop. I hope this was helpful or at least uh, enjoyable to listen to. Um, and if you want me to cover the books that came out this month, the March uh, previews, uh, let me know, and I'll I'll do that. It's not a, not a problem at all. But uh, 
That'll do it for the episode. If uh, you would like to write in and be a part of the show, uh, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can follow me on Twitter at Ace Comics if you uh, decide to. You can also shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. New content every day for over five years now. Uh, there's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com if all you want is the X stuff. Uh, you can chat with us on Facebook. I just I just edited the name of our group. Uh, it was From Claremont to Claremont. Now it's From Claremont to Claremont and X-Lapsed. Uh, you can find us there at 90sXmen, 90SXMEN. Finally, if you want to hear more comics, talks, and discussion, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You could find us on any of your noise aggregation systems and applications. So uh, chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And if you enjoy the content or at least appreciate the effort that goes behind it, please consider uh, spreading the word, sharing it, uh, let people know that it's a thing that exists and it's, it might just be something that they enjoy. I'm not really good at asking for help, but uh, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. So if you, uh, if it's not too much trouble, uh, please consider sharing and spreading the word. Uh, that'll do it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for spending a little bit extra time with me today to go through uh, the Marvel Previews catalog. I hope you uh, enjoyed it as much as I did. I, I had a pretty good time going through and uh, getting myself all jazzed up for what's uh, what's... Heading our way very, very shortly So uh, thank you all so much For hanging out with me today And until next time, as always I'll talk to you again real soon See ya How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 155 of X-Labs. And uh, it's been a minute since I last made a comment that this might be the shortest episode of X-Labs in quite some time. But, uh, well, this might be a fairly short episode. We don't have a mailbag this time, and the issue we're going to be discussing is one that I 
really don't have a whole heck of a lot to say about, um, other than the fact that uh, I found it to be kind of a mess. And I think if I were to repeat that over and over again, it would, uh, it probably wouldn't do anybody any good. So let's get into it, see what we can make of this. Today we are discussing Excalibur, Volume 4, Number 17. Now this had a March 2021 cover date, stories called QE3, which I'm taking to uh, mean Queen Elizabeth III, maybe? I don't know. Written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe, colors Eric Arshaniga, letters VCs Ariana Marr, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa white Sobolski, cover price $3.99 American, and this went on sale January 27th of 2021. Now this one has a uh, fairly interesting cover. It's uh, Betsy as a queen. Um, I think we saw this, or a similar portrait of this in the final pages of the previous issue here. She's just all, you know, dolled up like a, like a queen. Uh, now we open, and we're in London with uh, Reuben What's-His-Face from the Coven visiting with Pete Wisdom, who is uh, looking as aloof as ever, which makes me figure that this guy must be really, really good at his job because, I mean, he's just the worst. Who, who'd want to hang out with this guy? Now, it's been ages since we've seen Reuben or anyone having to do with the Coven Akaba, and I can't say that I'm happy to see him again. But... If we got to pick between the Coven and the other world, and it looks like we have to, I suppose I'll begrudgingly give old Reuben the nod. Anyway, he's here to find out what happened to Captain Britain. Wisdom doesn't know. And he also shrugs off his and Betsy's sort of kind of romance as nothing more than tabloid BS. Reuben then shows a group of photos of the heretical Captain Britain Corps, and of course those are the ones that look like Jubilee, Richter, Gambit, and Rogue. Not sure quite how he got these pictures, but, uh, I don't know. Whatever the case, Pete hasn't the foggiest idea who these characters are. Reuben suggests that Wisdom head to Krakoa to do some digging, which isn't exactly music to our kitty to flowerer's ears. Uh, worth noting, I guess Pete's trying to give up smoking, like, you know, the, little, the good little uh, Warren Ellis character that he once was. Instead, he's shown sucking a lollipop throughout the issue. Double page spread of roll call and cred. We're going to be paying attention to Betsy Britton, Rogue, Gambit, Jubilee, and Richter. Poor Pete Wisdom doesn't even get a spot in the roll call. Huh, that's sad. Info page. And boy is it. Now, um, this one took a few tries. And uh, we're going to try to figure this out together here. Uh, this appears to be a letter to Betsy from the Queen of England who is apparently also a member of the Captain Britain Corps. Um, like the Captain Britain Corps that's been around for like five minutes now. Uh, it's asking Betsy to return home to her home dimension as her presence threatens the peace of the place. And we're, I'm thinking that this is in the other dimension. So this is the other dimension's Queen of England writing to Betsy, knowing that she's there. So now this dimension's England is something of a mutant safe haven. So... Kind of like Krakoa, only without the psychic power siphoning and underlying nastiness, I suppose. Alright, so, I guess we are to assume that this Betsy, the one that we saw wake up at the end of last issue with a version of Warren Worthington, is our Betsy. Like, the real one, the 616 one. I mean, it stands to reason, kinda. But, at the same time, 
uh, over the past couple of issues, we've seen like several dozen flavors of Betsy Braddock showing up in this book, so we'll just hope. Okay, from here we go back to comics, and we see Betsy reading the same note that we just tried to get through. I think. Or is this Queen Betsy who wrote the damn letter? Um, I'm either an idiot or this is just a little bit too obtuse, perhaps a little bit of both. Whatever the case, we also learn here that uh, Pete Wisdom is the Prime Minister. So in this other dimension, I'm not sure what number it is, but it's another dimension. Now Angel and Betsy talk about the benefits of having a queen who is both mutant and a member of the Captain Britain Corps. And Betsy kind of like condescends to him, stating she doesn't care to get into the nitty-gritty of the multiverse with him. To which he reminds her, he's like, hey, you know, I did spend most of my life as an X-Man. Uh, to which Betsy takes this to mean that he's aware of her tendency to body hop. So, I mean, we know about the body hopping of Betsy Braddock, right? But is this, like, does this mean that our Betsy is in the body of Queen Betsy? Did I somehow miss an issue in the middle of this one? Uh, uh, they talk some more. Well, they, they talk a lot, actually. Betsy mentions that she and Warren were once together, which is true. They did hook up in the early 90s for a bit when Betsy was in her Quanon body. They pass a window where they can see a whole bunch of supporters holding signs, uh, you know, all hoping that the Queen gets well. They see Warren lied to the press, telling them that the Queen, uh, Queen Betsy was a bit under the weather. He just never expected that her people loved her quite this much, and I'm really not sure what the point of any of this is. Betsy then looks into her tea, and the leaves have formed the shape of, I don't know, a star? Like the scar around Cable's eye? Um, maybe her old psychic blade? I mean, hell, it might even be a sign that she's about to join the star Sapphires, for all I know. She tells Warren that uh, it's time to execute their plan, because she's got to get, wait for it, to Otherworld. So we get the Coven and Otherworld in the same friggin' issue? And somehow it's Cable that's getting cancelled? Ah. Now since Betsy does not have the sword or amulet, she's gonna have to make her way to the Lighthouse, which has a ready-made portal to get out of here and go to Otherworld. Warren suggests that Betsy will need someone to cover her and make sure she gets in unseen. And so he makes a call to his ex-wife. Any guesses? Yeah, her name is Quanon. We jump back to Krakoa, where the remaining members of Excalibur are preparing to move into the 616 version of the lighthouse to await Betsy's eventual and hopeful return. Now, they figure that uh, it'll probably be the way she comes back, right? If, in fact, she does come back, she'll probably turn up at the lighthouse. Now, before they can step through the portal, however, Pete Wisdom arrives to bore us some more. Well, Pete's actually planning on going with them. He'd like to check out Otherworld and see if he can find Betsy himself. Rogue tells him to pump the brakes and reminds him, and maybe a reader or two, that the stakes are different in Otherworld, and that resurrections stemming from deaths there are a bit hinky. She then offers for Excalibur to escort Pete to Avalon, uh, should he really want to go there. Pete mentions the coven, and all of our characters fall fast asleep. Okay, okay, they don't. Uh, Richter even looks a little bit excited. Um, now, Pete tells them that about the heretical Captain Britain Corps, and he assumes that they're all fake. After all, they're not even British. Gambit informs them that, nah, they real, honey child, and uh, Rogue pipes in that they're a product of that weirdo Jamie Braddock, to which Pete's all nuff said. 
Pete informs the team that, since Betsy's vanished, the Intel community are beginning to listen to what the Coven Akaba are saying. Saying about what? Who knows? I mean, they're, they're witches. Uh, the government is... Um, okay, now, during this exchange, it would appear as though Rogue is as confused on the topic of whether we call it England or Great Britain or the UK as I am, which is uh, comforting in a way. Now, Pete mentions that Reuben What's-His-Face didn't have his little witch with him during their meeting, and of course, he's referring to the scariest PTA mom ever, Mariana Stern. On the way to the lighthouse, Pete gets laid. As in, the young mutant curse attempts to give him a lay, since it's uh, his first time to Krakoa, so I'm talking about the, you know, the floral necklace. Now, Wisdom is quite freaked out by this, and it's in an over-the-top sort of way, which really only works for me when it's Mr. Sinister being scared at the sight of Nanny. Nice try, though. Info page. Now, looks like the lighthouse on whatever Earth Queen Betsy is currently on is not so much an old-fashioned, you know, block-and-spackle lighthouse, but a state-of-the-art intelligence agency. Now, the director of this place is Alison Stewart, who in our world was part of the WHO, and if I'm remembering right, the focus of a Kitty Pride crush. Now we rejoin Betsy and Quanon as they're choppering into this lighthouse. Now Betsy's got a lot of questions for Quanon, but Quanon ain't all that keen in talking. You know, she's just here to do a job, not to make friends with her ex-husband's new girlfriend. Betsy says she's going to ask some questions anyway, and if Quanon wants to answer, well, she's more than welcome. Let's jump back to the 616 Lighthouse. Excalibur and Pete Wisdom have arrived, only to find Mariana Stern and the Coven attempting to destroy the place, and also destroy the gateway inside. Why? Who knows? Something something witch breed, I guess. Now Rogue tells her to back off because this is Braddock land. Stern demands that they show her a Braddock then. <laughs> I... I'm not a worldly guy, but is this how land ownership goes in England, or Great Britain, or the UK, or wherever we are? Do you actually risk losing your home and land every time you, like, go to work, or head to the store, or leave on vacation? Do you actually need to, like, physically be there to say, hey, I own this land, this is my land? This is... this isn't very good. Anyway, they fight. Stern and the gang manage to grab Richter and some yellow hoodoo, and it almost looks like Primus's stretchy bits from the Juggernaut mini. They then lock themselves in a force field. Let's hop back to Betsy. Now, as she and Quinan fight their way into the compound, Quinan tells her that she'll answer only three questions. So this is kind of a really sad genie thing, right? So Betsy's first question is, is there a Krakoa on this earth? Quinan says, yeah, it's that old mutant island, but no one ever goes there. But... Alas, it does exist. Betsy's second question is, how is my brother? She doesn't specify which one. Uh, Quanon says that he's the head of the British space program. Again, I don't know if this is that weirdo Jamie or beautiful Brian, because no one specifies and nobody cares. Betsy's third and final question is, have you always lived in your body? To which Quanon says that's a waste of a final question. But by now, the girls have made their way to the portal, and it looks kind of well, now it looks exactly like a star sapphire. Betsy tells Quinan that uh, she was once forced to wear her body, and Quinan is under the assumption that Betsy is currently occupying the body of the queen anyway, so this isn't all that much of a surprise, though she does take it as kind of a threat. And she even goes as far as to shove Betsy through the portal just to, you know, get rid of her, but Betsy reverses the shove into a hip toss. 
They struggle for a bit before Betsy just gets up and steps through the portal. And she apologizes to Quanon, though... I mean, this Quanon isn't the one who needs it. I mean, hell, even the real Quanon's gotta know it wasn't Betsy's decision to occupy her body by this point, right? I mean, that's their only damn story. They, we've been through this. Uh, anyway, back to the lighthouse. Excalibur is, sadly, getting trounced by the coven. But then, Betsy rises from the water, which, for some reason, ends the fight. Uh, Rogue tells Mariana that Captain Britain is back before telling her to literally get. And that's that. Next episode, Wolverine places a bid at the Legacy House. So, uh, looking forward to that. But, let's, uh, let's talk about this. Now, when we started this project, uh, going on seven months ago. Wow, it is... Long time now. Seven months ago we started this project, and uh, one of the things that I said right out of the gate was that I was worried that uh, the Hickman stuff was going to make me feel dumb. Because it's all the high-concept stuff, a lot of stuff that uh, I just don't think I'm uh, intelligent enough to process. <laughs> and uh, while some of it's gone over my head, I, can, I can't say that I you know, haven't understood it. I never would have guessed that reading Excalibur would make me feel even dumber because I am, like, beyond lost here. And it's become almost a meme on this show now, or a trope for me to say, like, hey, it feels like I missed an issue. But this feels like like several pages out of the middle of this book fell out. I don't understand why any of this is actually going down the way it is. I mean, I've, re- I've read confusing or experimental comics before... But even in like the most like obtuse forms of storytelling, there's there's a feeling of like organic progression. This book doesn't have any of that. This is here's a scene, here's a scene, here's a scene, here's a scene. There's nothing really linking anything together, and maybe it's just me. Maybe other people are really really loving this uh, this way of telling stories here, but. It's It's been a tough follow from the very start. Like, these scenes don't segue into other scenes. These scenes just stop. They don't even end. They just stop. And I, I'm having a heck of a time. <laughs> I'm really having a heck of a time here. Added to that, we're dealing with topics that I really don't care about. Uh, again, that's not a fault of the creative team here. They clearly have a story that they really, really are passionate about and want to tell in this Coven Akaba and Otherworld sort of mess. I'm not interested in witchcraft. I'm so beyond exhausted of Otherworld. I don't know why after, this is what, 17 issues of this book, we're still trying to... We're still trying to present Betsy in this new role when... How legitimate can we take her when it's taken them nearly two years... To, I mean, they haven't even convinced us yet that she belongs in this role. It's it's all it's all magic. It's all a wizard did it. You know, it's like, how do we know she deserves this? Well, all the Captain Britain Corps have purple hair now. Okay, well, what has she done to earn the title? I don't know. But here's two years worth of stories where she's trying to prove it over and over and over again. It's just not a fun story. And I mean, and we're still still dealing with Quanon. We're still dealing with the body hopping. I, I, can we can we be done with that? I mean, even Quanon seems like she's done with that in Alien's book. Can we just be past this for now? It's something that happened a quarter century ago, longer than a quarter of a century ago, right? I mean, this is ancient history. 
can we just let it be and move forward? We don't need the Betsy and Quinan thing. I'm just glad we didn't see any butterflies here today. I I didn't like the scene between Betsy and Quinan where she was asking the questions, mostly because the questions, you got to consider... I mean, I don't know how much of an opportunity it is to ask an alternate version of someone whose body you once occupied some questions, especially when their world might have very little bearing on your own. So, I mean, what's really the point? But you're given three questions, and you waste them by asking some of the dumbest stuff you could possibly ask. Is Krakoa here? Who cares? Yes, no, maybe. Who cares? It doesn't make a damn bit of difference. How is my brother? Well, first, which one? And second, who cares? It has nothing to do with anything. In fact, the only question that gets dismissed as a waste of a question was the only one that I feel had any sort of, maybe not so much value, but uh, I was kind of interested in hearing a response. Uh, Not that, you know, I was expecting anything mind-blowing, because I don't know that we'll ever see these people ever again, and I kind of hope we don't. But it just seems like such a wasted opportunity here And just more angst for uh, for Betsy More angst for an alternate version of Quanon I mean, what's what do we come out of this with? Not a whole heck of a lot This just filled pages And did so in a uh, kind of mind-numbing way Should we talk about the coven? <laughs> well, first, let's talk about um, our Excalibur team here Or, as I think I've been calling them, the round pegs they're trying to shove into square holes here What does Rogue, Jubilee, Gambit, and, and Richter care about magic? I mean, Richter, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you, he's doing this whole druid thing He was, uh, you know, studying under Apocalypse, trying to cast spells here What the hell does Rogue care about the, the Coven? Why does Jubilee care about the Coven? Why does Gambit care? They, they shouldn't. They really, really shouldn't. I, I, this could be done with any number of characters on Krakoa. We could pick any random five characters, and they could be slotted into these roles. There's no intrinsic reason for it to be Rogue, Gambit, Jubilee. It could be anybody, which, to me, kind of takes the wind out of the sails for this book. Um... We've talked before where they have done little kind of interpersonal scenes with these characters, and it's like, okay, this is pretty well done. You know, it's pretty well done stuff here, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who they are. I think that's where I'll stop now, because I think I'm just uh, becoming more and more repetitive here. I just keep uh, I keep rehashing the same point over and over again. If this was not a completionist project, X-Lapsed, um, we wouldn't be talking about this book anymore. That said, uh, Marcus Toe's work is very, very nice. So at least it's uh, really, really good to look at. But that is uh, where I'm going to leave it for our discussion of Excalibur. Uh, If you agree, disagree, please feel free to reach out to me. And uh, that would usually take us to the mailbag, but uh, the mailbag is empty today. So we will not be talking about any mail. However... I would like to talk about um, a little conversation we're having over at the Facebook group right now. It's 90s X-Men on Facebook if you want to join in on the discussion. Uh, Evan Bevins had asked if anybody had any thoughts about who our new X-Men team was going to be uh, comprised of. Now, if you're following along, you know that there was like an online voting so we can name the final member of this team. And they're going to be unveiled during the Hellfire Gala, which we will be taking a look at in June of this year. So 
less than three months from now, we should know exactly who is on our team here. But Evan was wondering if anybody had any hot takes here, and I figured I'd share mine. And I would invite everyone else to share those as well, either on Facebook or, you know, any way you want to get a hold of me. And uh, we're working under the assumption here that Polaris is going to win the vote, because uh, she was ahead by quite a bit. And we're also going to assume that our team will top out at eight members, because I think... We, we couldn't remember if there was a hard and firm number on it, but uh, I think we're all in agreement on the group that, uh, that it was going to be seven members plus whoever wins the vote. So, eight members. And let's go through my picks for the eight team uh, members of the new X-Men. One, Cyclops. Obviously, it's going to be Cyclops. He is, uh, you know, starting the team along with two, Jean Grey or Marvel Girl, whatever you want to call her. So, those are our first two members. Goes without saying. Third member, I picked X-23. Uh, you need a Wolverine on the team, and it looks like from you know the covers of some upcoming issues of X-Men that she and uh, Darwin and Sink will be coming out of the vault pretty soon. And since the real Wolverine is uh, busy in like you know Skate 800 other books during the month, maybe we just give this one to uh, to all Laura there. I don't know if she'll be going under the Wolverine moniker. This era of books seems a little confused as to whether or not she wants to do that. Uh, when we read Fallen Angels, she wanted to be out of Wolverine's shadow and, uh, you know, wasn't even wearing the Wolverine costume anymore. Then in X-Men, when she went into the vault, she was calling herself Wolverine wearing the Wolverine costume. So, who knows? But uh, she is my pick for the third member of this team. The fourth member of the team, I'm picking Dazzler. Now, I'm picking Dazzler for kind of a snarky reason, but at the same time... One that I could totally see coming together here. Now, I feel like every writer for the past, make 15, 20 years, has taken a swing at legitimizing Dazzler. I compare this to uh, Jeff Johns trying to prove that Aquaman isn't a joke, and then from that point on, everybody who takes a swing at Aquaman has to tell the same damn story about how Aquaman isn't a joke. I feel like that's what we're going to do with Dazzler. I feel like uh, Hickman might want to take his swing at uh, legitimizing Dazzler and making her a force to be reckoned with here. My fifth team member is Kid Cable. Uh, That all comes from the recent issue of Cable where uh, Scott pulled him aside and said he wanted to talk to him about uh, starting up the team. So I took that as meaning, hey, maybe, uh, maybe it'll be him. Sixth, I'm picking Vulcan because he's got some ties to space. Hickman likes space. And Vulcan hasn't, uh, you know, outside of the Deadly Genesis, he hasn't really been a member of, uh, of a you know, legitimate frontline X-Men team. So I think Vulcan might be an interesting pick there. Uh, for my seventh pick, I have just a random Araki. I don't know if it'll be Iska the Unbeaten. I don't know if it'll be anybody. I don't. It might be an Araki that we don't know yet. It might be a way of kind of uh, spreading the sphere of influence of the X-Men to both islands. It might be a olive branch sort of a thing, or it might be a thing where the Iraqi is trying to uh, do a little bit of spy work and maybe sabotage some of the uh, the X-Men's plans. So I'm thinking that we will probably see an Iraqi on the team. Uh, don't know which one. I think I'd like for it to be Iska, but I uh, don't know exactly which one. And rounding out our team, in the eighth position, will be Polaris, who's going to win the uh, fan vote here. I did not vote for Polaris, uh, mostly because I wanted to see Banshee win. I, I, 
I never seen Banshee as you know an actual you know full fledged X Men character. He was with the team relatively briefly, you know, just around giant size, and kind of kind of flitted off after that, you know, kind of being the elder statesman, and then moving over to Muir Island with Mora, stuff like that. So I thought it'd be neat to see him like actually on an X Men, you know, Strike Force team. Um, Polaris, I I like her in an uh, X Factor too, so I wouldn't have voted for her because I don't want her pulled from the X Factor roster. But I mean, we are dealing with. We're dealing with, you know, characters who were on all different books all different times So, for all I know, Polaris could be on the X-Men, X-Factor, the Fallen Angels Volume 3, Avengers, Savage Avengers, who knows So, uh, that is my team Cyclops, Marvel Girl, X-23, Dazzler, Cable, Vulcan, Anaraki, and Polaris Again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this subject here And maybe you guys know something that I don't I try to stay away from the news sites So maybe Marvel has told us who, uh, who this team's going to be comprised of All except for the you know top secret vote winning uh, member there If that's the case, hey let me know. You can get a hold of me very, very easily. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can also find X-Lapsed Origins over there. That's an ongoing series of articles uh, taking a look at seminal moments that still inform these books to this very day. Some uh, stuff we're looking at right now are the early Captain Britain stories, and uh, I actually floated a question out to the Facebook group about who should we take a look at next. And it looks like when we're done with Captain Britain, we're going to be taking a look at Nanny and the Orphan Maker. So we're going to talk about their history. We're going to take a look at some of their uh, more pivotal moments and hopefully learn a little bit more about them. Because those are characters that I feel like a lot of us know, but don't really know enough to talk about it, myself included. You know, I know that uh, Nanny's the egg-shaped thing, and I know that Orphan Maker wears that armor. I can't tell you a whole heck of a lot more than that. So we're going to all learn this stuff together, and I'm looking forward to that, and I hope you are as well. So that is chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, where you can uh, find all the show stuff. Uh, There's, of course, the Facebook group, 90s X-Men on Facebook. Join in the conversation if you'd like. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. We're available on all your noise aggregation... How do I put it there? Noise aggregation devices and applications. Yeah, that's what I tried to say. One of these days I'm going to get through this without having to, like, edit and pause and stuff like that. But uh, today is not that day. Anyway... I uh, think we'll wrap it up right here before I uh, totally swallow my tongue. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for letting me be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Searching for the real thing Living like you
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 166 of X-Lapsed, where uh, we might be inadvertently doing uh, our books out of order, just for this episode and, I suppose, next episode. I was looking at the uh, Coming Soon page, and uh, an older one had this book before an issue of Marauders, but uh, looking at the ones closer to the actual date here have Marauders above the book we're going to discuss today. So, uh... Apologies uh, for folks reading along at home and uh, who may not have covered this book yet, but uh, it's the script I wrote, so uh, we're going to be taking a look at Cable, Volume 4, Number 8. Now, this had an April 2021 cover date. The story is called My Dinner with Domino, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. Led as VC's Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Zabolski, cover price $4. This one went on sale February 17, 2021. Now we open with a note from Nate about Strife. It's one of those uh, mostly empty quote pages, so uh, we won't, I just won't pay too much attention to it. Then we get into comics, and we are in, uh-oh, deep space. Don't worry, just for a second. Uh, Here, we see a meteorite changing its trajectory overlaid by Domino discussing how she doesn't really know how her powers actually work. But the important thing here is the meteorite. Remember that, I beg of you. Down to Earth, and our heroes are walking that mall from the Yakuza video games. Uh, Domino wants some gyoza dumplings, if I'm pronouncing that right, probably not. And there's a certain tourist trap here that serves up some of the best. And it's a mech-themed joint, where the greeter in a robot costume asks if Nate has ever visited before. To which Nate's all, nah, but I've eaten at Galador, which, I mean, we get, but dude in the robot suit probably just thinks he's being a jerk. Anyway, they pop in, and they have an awkward but fun chat. Now, Cable asks uh, Domino if he, as in when he was old man Cable, ever called her Dom, to which she says no. And I'm not sure I buy that, but I just don't have the time to fact-check it. (laughs) I could swear, I mean, they've known each other a long time here. It stands to reason that he might have just called her Dom once or twice. Um, Now, he also talks about having to retire his older self for being a screw-up and allowing the time-displaced original five to remain in the present for as long as they did, which we talked all about for like six hours here on the channel, if you check out the Ex-Lapsedination series in the archives. Now, they take their seats and they start eating. Cable looks at Domino weird, which she takes to mean that he's given her the goo-goo eyes. She jokes that at one time Cable was too old for her, and now, well, I mean, he's a kid. Uh, You know, not that it ever stopped them from bathing together in that gigantic bathtub in the early issues of X-Force. I mean, old or not, whatever. Now, what she doesn't realize here is that Kid Cable isn't looking at her, he's looking right past her. Because as luck would have it, he's spotted the Order of X kidnapper, if you remember him from the last issue. And so Cable darts after the baby napper, while Domino just continues to eat. 
She even swipes a bit off of Nate's own plate. Cable follows the fella down some stairs into a biometrically sealed door. This fact will also be important. Worth noting on the way down, our bad guy orders someone to begin the hatching sequence. This will also be important. But first, double page spread of roll call and cred. We got two characters here. We got Kid Cable, we got Domino. Back to comics, and our titular hero is unloading his gun into the door. This does not work. But then, the biometric scanning device does a once-over on Cable's eye, and it unlocks. Huh. Inside, Nate is faced off with the Baby Napper, or a clone of the Baby Napper, which is actually a clone of himself somewhere between his current age and his old man Cable age, which is how our boy was able to pass through the bioscan locked door, if you follow. They have a fairly contentious and expository chat here. Uh, Strife is still alive, that much we know. Nate thought he'd killed him before coming to the past to take out the old man, even though I could swear that Strife was on a cover of a handful of issues of uh, X-Force Volume 5, you know, the one right after Extermination, before Hoxbox. Though in fairness, A, I haven't read them, and B, covers are mostly meaningless nowadays. The baby napper mocks Nate uh, for both, you know, hating clones and also dating a bunch of them, uh, referring to the Stepford Cuckoos, of course. We also learn that the Order of X fella that Nate killed in that house in the woods was also a clone of him. Then the hatching begins, and a dozen kid cable clones rush toward our man. So Strife is cloning kid cable, or I just cable in general, a lot. Cable, however, isn't so much mad at his darker half here, but Apocalypse for creating and raising the evil clone to be the way that he is in the first place. I think that might be an oversimplification of the creation of Strife here. I remember a lot, whole lot of, like, Eskani uh, voodoo and hoodoo uh, involved in that, but uh, uh, honestly, it's been so long that I couldn't speak with any eloquence, or even less eloquence than I usually do, uh, about that. But, uh... What Kid Cable would love here is some answers. Unfortunately, he is currently honeymooning in hell. And, you know, he hasn't actually done any of this yet because this is all far-flung future stuff and uh, we're still in the present. Nate has some chicken-and-egg thoughts here, uh, like, did Apocalypse make strife to take Cable's place or to toughen Cable up for something yet to come? Is strife only around because Nate's here or is the opposite true? Is Nate only here because strife's here? It's good questions to ask. Anyway, over the course of the next half dozen or so pages, Domino finally stops eating her dumplings and assists our hero in taking out the clone brigade. Now, one of the Nates dives out of the way, claiming to be a friendly. He then approaches Domino to thank her, to which she shoots him right between the eyes. This, of course, was another fake. Our Nate is at the bottom of a dog pile of Nates, all of them dead except him, of course. Uh, worth noting... As Domino enters the scene, she cautions Cable to aim for the limbs or risk ending up in the hole with Sabretooth, but then she blows all the clone's brains out. So, is this the further devaluing of clone life? Is Chris going to spend the next ten minutes talking about Madeline Pryor and Scout? Uh, no, I won't. Uh, just know that I really, really want to. Anyway... Domino realizes that she's taken only 11 of the 12 clones out. And just as she realizes that, hey, that 12th clone shows himself. 
Nate and Domino step into a puddle. Remember that, it's going to be important. Our heroes tell the clone to drop his weapon, and so he does. The dropped pistol somehow electrifies the puddle on the ground, rendering Dom and Cab shocked and brought down to their knees. The clone does the James Bond villain thing, where instead of just killing them both, he tells him he's going to kill them both, and then what he plans to do afterward. Now you see, he plans to take Kid Cable's spot on Krakoa. I mean, stands to reason, doesn't it? Now it's a kind of a moot point, however, as, uh... Y'all remember that meteorite from the beginning? Yeah, that one I told you to remember, don't forget about it. Yeah, that one. It comes crashing into the scene, smashing into the clone, taking him out completely. All we got left to him is his feet. Domino tells Nate that it's been real, but please lose my number for a few years. So, bada-bing. From here, an info page, and it's a text message exchange between Domino and Beast, wherein she explains the mess that needs cleaning up. Worth noting... We get a maggot mention here, which ought to make at least one listener quite happy. Now, after an admittedly funny exchange here, Beast states that X-Factor is on their way to take care of it. And I didn't realize that was part of X-Factor's gig, but then again, I didn't exactly know that it wasn't, so who knows. Back to comics, and we're back in another place, another time, with Old Man Cable. If you remember that, that was a long time ago. He's about to enter that citadel we saw him approaching, like, six months ago. He gets in, steps over a tripwire, but then crashes through the floor. Seems that his nemesis knew he'd step over the tripwire and decided to, uh, you know, double his pleasure there. Now we wrap up with him plunging into the darkness while an unseen nemesis mocks him a whole lot. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, we get to Marauders number 18, which... Depending on which coming soon list you're looking at, uh, might have come before this one. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, let's talk about this one. Let's do it. Now, this one was um, a bit weird. Uh, I'd say that this shows uh, sure signs of truncation, while at the same time it doesn't exactly feel rushed. Just a whole lot of exposition and pieces like falling conveniently into place. Um Now let's do something a little bit different today, and we'll start with the art, okay? This is Phil Noto, so it's lovely, right? It's great stuff here. But shouldn't it be just a little bit clearer that the Order of X guy is a middle-aged Nathan? I mean, it's not just us who don't see the resemblance. Nobody in the book seems to be able to either. Now let's go back to Extermination, which, I mean, Exlapsination is in the archives if you want to hear it. There, young Cyclops is able to recognize Kid Cable on sight. He's never seen him before, sees him as a child, and is like, that's Cable. But here, nobody's been able to deduce the middle-aged one here is who he is. Just last issue, Nate and Rachel were right up on him, and neither of them noticed? Did Rachel not perform like a psi scan or anything? This uh, just feels a little little convenient. Uh, I mean, maybe it's the domino effect, I don't know. Speaking of Domino, uh, you know, I could probably do without super aloof Domino. Uh, She really comes across weird here. Um, I will concede that I haven't read much of her semi-recent solo stuff. I think there was like a Hot Shots Shots, uh, miniseries or something. But is this how she is now? I mean, I remember back in the day being really annoyed that she was like all business. She was like always super serious. But it seems like like they might have like overcorrected with her here. Um, here she doesn't have any of the depth that we've seen from her in X Force. 
it felt, and I really hate to say this about Duggan's work, it felt a little try-hard. And, uh, like, they were really trying to make, like, drive this point home that Domino is, like, this carefree character when we know from her time in X-Force that she's not. I don't know. Now let's get to the clone stuff. Because you knew I was gonna. The middle-aged Nate clone makes some interesting points here. First, he brings to our attention and reminds us of the fact that the Stepford Cuckoos are clones, right? I mean, we knew that, but they haven't really talked about it a whole heck of a lot. Here they are. Now, the Cuckoos, at least two of, have been resurrected as we entered into the Hoxpox era, which says to us that clones can be resurrected, so long as you have a, a cheering section on the Quiet Council, I guess. Now, this makes it so the refusal to resurrect Madeline is a little bit more of a personal decision than strict Krakoan law sort of a situation. And I like that a whole lot. First, because it actually shows us that it matters who holds the seats of power in Krakoa, right? They're not just, you know, empty suits and seats. They they actually are... They're actually making change or stopping change here. They're, They're affecting things. Now, second, because it's sort of kind of evidence that there's still free thinking at play on Krakoa. Now, if we go to our one of our leading theories here, uh, that we've got we kind of write off any bizarre behavior that we witness due to potential Krakoan influence, which of course may ultimately wind up becoming a version of a hive mind that Mora is so worried about with the rise of the machines and the phalanx. But here, at least in this situation, we can see that the characters are working in their own best interests here. They choose not to resurrect Madeline. We don't know what's going on with Scout, if, if she were to, to perish. But the Cuckoos are back, right? I mean, that's, uh, that's weird. Unless, of course, I'm thinking way too hard on this, which, <laughs> I mean, this is one of my favorite topics of the show, so it's a very good possibility that that is the case. Uh, now, it's also worth noting here... That Domino wastes no time blowing the brains out of all these clones. Which, considering how she cautioned Cable not to go for the kill just moments earlier, tells us that Krakoans, or at least Domino herself, does not view clones as people. Right? That's going to be kind of sticky, and I, I hope it's going somewhere, because, I mean, Domino, before she saw that these were clones, she she said, don't kill them, or else you'll wind up in the hole. She sees these living beings here, recognizes them as clones, and says, okay, it's, you know, it's free game now, I can just take you all out. And that's exactly what she did, without any fear of uh, retribution or being sent to the hole, because I guess clones are considered lesser than. They're not men. You know, that, that Krakoan law... I mean, they're, they're kind of wibbly-wobbly on what the third Krakoan law is. Is it, is it, or it might be the first Krakoan law, is it kill no man or kill no human? It's, it depends on which is the, the last one we heard here. But what, it, what this says to me is that Domino does not consider clones to be human or man. And they are so much fodder here. And it's exactly what we saw. It really, I don't know, it gives us a whole lot. It gives us more questions. And, uh, I, and these are questions that we actually, I, I can speak for myself, of course, I want to see the answer to this question. I want to see how this plays out. So uh, definitely high points for raising those points. Um, Let's talk about Old Man Cable. It's been a minute since we last last saw him, right? Um, Actually, it's 
I think it's been since like cable number two, which I mean, we discussed cable number two back in episode 87, which came out December 17th of 2020. And you know, while we're looking at the archives here, um, we actually talked about the first issue of Cable 101 episodes ago. That's a long time. Uh, It doesn't feel like we've been doing this that long. Anyway, Old Man Cable is back here, but where and when exactly is here, right? Where, Where are we? When are we? Now, I got a theory. I have a theory here. I don't know if it's a, uh, a good one. Uh, but would it be completely out of the realm of possibility that old man Cable here is stomping around a far-flung future version of Krakoa itself? You know, he was about to enter a citadel or whatever it was after it scanned him. You know, he went up to this door, this little lock on it, gave him the once-over, and then unlocked and opened is that like a mutant lock sort of gimmick? I mean, I don't know. This could definitely be leading somewhere very interesting. And I'm also becoming more and more convinced that uh, Old Man Cable will probably be coming back at the end of this volume. Um, I- I've seen the cover to Cable number 12. If uh, It looks like a... Uh, if, you get, if you look at number 11, it has it's like a half face of a kid cable. And number 12 is the other half of the face as Old Man Cable. So here I'm thinking, I mean, and I mentioned earlier, covers are meaningless mostly, but I don't know, that that tells me maybe, maybe we're getting the Old Man back, which, you know, back when we started this little X-Lapse journey here, I thought I'd be looking more forward to, you know, um, when we started this, you know, the very sight of Kid Cable caused me to roll my eyes. I was like, why do we need this? But now... Largely due to this volume, I've really grown attached to him. And I mean, I guess we still have a bit of time before we find out, so we'll save those concerns for later on here. It's just uh, it's just speculation at this point, but uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of what we do in this segment of the show, isn't it? Overall, <laughs> we are at the two-thirds point in Cable Volume 4. And while I'm still enjoying it very much, I feel like... This was a pretty confusing little outing here. Um, like I said, there's a feeling of truncation, but at the same time, it doesn't feel rushed. It just feels maybe a little too convenient. But then again, I mean, this was a Domino issue, and Domino, if nothing else, is a, is a convenient character, isn't she? But that will do it for our discussion of this issue of Cable. Uh, we are once again mailbagless, so no mail today. Hopefully that'll pick up over the next uh, couple of episodes. But uh, I do have some news. I got news here. News you could use if you would like to use this news. Uh, We got election news here. We got two more of our candidates for the new team of X-Men kicked out here. They're just uh, eliminated from contention. And those characters are Marrow and Armor. They did not win the vote. So now we know it's not Forge. Not Strong Guy, not Marrow, nor Armor. All we've got left to pick from are Polaris, who is probably going to win, Boom Boom, Cannonball, Tempo, Banshee, or Sunspot. So, uh, I mean, place your bets. I'm pretty sure Polaris has got this one in the bag. As I mentioned, I voted for Banshee. But uh, that's our election news. I think we're probably going to be getting election news Probably every day for a little while. We're just going to narrow the field here, uh, eliminating one or two every day. 
Uh, another piece of news we got, and this is thanks to our friend Evan Bevins on the Facebook group here. I questioned whether or not X-Men Legends was going to be coming back because the June solicitations do not feature it. You know, there is no X-Men Legends in June, but it is, in fact, coming back in July. And we're going to get a story featuring Peter David's X-Factor. The, uh, you know, the post-1991, or the, I guess, 1991-1992 team here. This is a story that's supposed to fit between X-Factor number 75 and 76. It's got art by Todd Nock, which puts him back with Peter David. You know, that's the old uh, Young Justice uh, creative team, which is really, really cool to see. I will go deeper into this as we cover solicits, uh, you know, at the beginning of the next month here, or I guess beginning of June it would be. But uh, we do have a quote here from Peter David about this gig. He says, X-Factor are old friends of mine, and I was delighted when Marvel gave me the opportunity to revisit them. I have to admit I was a little concerned since so many years have passed, but the moment I started writing them, it was like no time had gone by at all. So I don't know what story he's planning to tell. I'm looking forward to it either way, though, because that is a, uh, that's a wonderful little run. Uh, way, way, way too short, <laughs> but... Uh, Definitely, I think out of the uh, out of the you know 1991 launches or re- refigurings of the X line here, X Factor may have aged the best. It's uh, very very solid stuff here. But that's the news for today, and that's where we'll leave it. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, maybe add to the mailbag or maybe drop me a line with some uh, news we can use. Please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find me on basically any social media. I don't know how to use most of it, but I'm there. Um, you can go find blog posts and show notes at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com for all the show stuff. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our group is 90s X-Men, having some real good conversations there. Right now we're talking about uh, the Heroes Reborn stuff and whether or not that's the X-Men tie-ins are things we need to discuss on the show. If you have any thoughts on that, please let me know, because uh, it seems to be a pretty even vote right now, with people saying skip it and people saying, yeah, let's give it a shot. So the more we know, the more we can do. So let me know your thoughts on that. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your noise aggregation sites, devices, and applications. And, uh, yeah, uh, that's where we'll leave it for today. I want to thank you all so much for sharing some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 170 of X-Lapsed, and I can't believe it's taken me 170 episodes to realize that if our heroes aren't messing with Otherworld, they're messing with Madripoor. So, uh, we've got... I mean, we knew this story was going to be in Madripoor. It's a three-part story, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, it's very, very evident that... I mean, our characters are just stuck going in one of two directions here. All the ones not written by Hickman, I guess. But uh, let's get into it. This is Wolverine, Volume 7, Number 10. At an April 2021 cover date and a legacy number of 352. Stories called Mercenaries, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Adam Cubitt. Colors Frank Martin, led as VC's Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Amaro Basso White Sobolski, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale February 24 of 2021. Now we start with a broken-in-two double-page spread of roll call and cred here. Uh, we got one page with our little catch-up and our roll call. The next page is our credits. The characters we'll be paying attention to today are Wolverine and Maverick. That's about it. Now we pick up right where we left off last issue. Now Maverick's got his gun held up to the merchant's dome. Wolverine is standing there with his claws crossed. I I always, it's funny when you see pictures of Wolverine with his claws crossed like that. You know, like where he's making an X, basically. It looks really cool, but I can't think of a single instance where it like makes sense for him to be standing like that, unless he's posing for for a photo, I guess. But anyway, the merchant's crew has them surrounded with their guns drawn. Wolverine suggests that the merchant call off his goons and give up the magnetic gloves, or else he's about to have his head pierced. And so, the baddie drops the mitts. Unfortunately, this just lowers Maverick's guard to the point where the merchant can sneak in a shot from one of the Punisher's old pistols he had hidden on his person. The shot deflects off of uh, Mav's mask, but I'm sure it's still hurting. In fact, he will say it hurt a little bit later on. Uh, Old Merch also has one of Elektra's daggers, um... Do ninjas have daggers? I don't know, I thought it would be like a sigh. Now, while the skirmish plays out, the merchant, uh, boy, am I saying the word merchant a lot, suggests that Wolverine and Maverick don't place any value in history. Which, I mean, I can't really speak for Maverick, but wasn't there a time where, like, every single Wolverine story had to do with his history? I don't know. Uh, The auction house fight scene rolls on for several pages. Um, It's worth noting that they're very pretty pages. The point here is that Wolverine and Maverick are totally distracted from what's going on on the floor. You know, they're busy dealing with dozens upon dozens of heavies here. Now, this is when Dolores What's-Her-Face from the X-Desk shoots the merchant in the back. She calls in her CIA backup and swipes that severed Wolverine arm that was up for bid last issue. It seems like they haven't settled on Dolores's relationship or association with Krakoa, as well as her actual, just, physical look. I mean, we could put up every instance in which we've seen her so far, and if not for the wheelchair, I'm not sure you'd know it was supposed to be the same woman. Anyway, Wolverine and Maverick, upon seeing the stage swarmed by CIAs, decide to leg it. They flee the auction house and arrive on the docks of Madripoor. Got a question for you. Did you know that Madripoor is a lawless place? 
Well, if you didn't, you do now, because it's mentioned like three times on a single page here, and basically every page that we've read about Madripoor to this point. Now, the CIAs arrive, and so Wolverine swipes an octopus from a street vendor and throws it at them. Then, more fighting. Wolverine directs Maverick to a nearby Krakoan portal, which, well, we've got to assume after the events of Marauders Number 18 is completely swarming with Madripoor police and new Reavers. Because, yeah, no, nah, that's, that's a totally different book, and it's not like they have editors in common or anything, so, uh, no. Uh, but for real, Wolverine suggests that they portal hop, to which Maverick says he don't need no stinking Krakoa. Just then, Mav's Merc outfit flies overhead in a chopper. Maverick offers Wolverine another way out, and so they climb into the helicopter. Dolores What's-A-Face looks on, and I swear she looks different from even just the last time we saw her a couple pages ago. Next up, info page, a CIA phone log where Dolores is reporting into the CIA director. Now, the director is worried that what went down at Legacy House might endanger the U.S.'s treaty with Krakoa. Dolores is all, nah, ain't no big thing. This happened in Madripoor, don't you know? And it's lawless here. Uh, Now, we find out here that Dolores was at the Legacy House auction because she wanted to buy Maverick. Now, she thinks there's still a way to do this. I mean, he is a mercenary, after all. Uh, She might not be able to outright buy him, but uh, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident that she can hire him. Back to comics, and we're on board the Merc Chopper. Here, Logan is introduced to the rest of Maverick's crew, Mareem and Junior, and he compares them to Team X. The helicopter brings them to uh, the Merc's submarine headquarters. Maverick says it's always on the move, and it keeps them one step ahead. Then he kind of razzes Wolverine a bit, claiming that uh, he doesn't answer to anybody here. Not a Professor Thornton, and certainly not a Professor Xavier. Wolverine's all, hey man, Krakow is a cool place, we're family there. To which, Maverick makes a drinking the cult Kool-Aid reference. Now, apropos of nothing, he's referencing the Jonestown mass suicide from 1978 here, and uh, they didn't use Kool-Aid there, they used Flavor-Aid. And uh, I... I think this is a uh, losing battle here. I would, uh, I won't even press the issue, but uh, it was flavor aid. Anyway, Maverick suggests that Logan leave Krakoa behind and join the Mercs, and it'll be just like the good old days. Wolverine turns him down. Maverick's all, okay, cool, but while you're here, how about we pull off one more job together? Now, Wolverine's in, because we've still got like seven pages left in the issue, and he's not ready to get back into the Vampire Nation story just yet. Now, this job is breaking into the merchant's warehouse to destroy the goods he's looking to auction off. And so, before we know it, Wolverine and Maverick parachute down to his Houston estate, and they bust into the place via the skylight. Now, here, we get one of those like very, very fun pages full of historical Marvel memorabilia here. Uh, I think the first time I saw something like this was in Future Imperfect with uh, Rick Jones's collection, and uh, I love pages like this. So uh, let's take a look at all the goodies here. Now first, there are many, many, many boxes and crates labeled by which superhero or villain family the contents inside belong to. We've got one labeled Spider-Man, a couple labeled uh, X-Men, a ton labeled Avengers, AIM, Hydra, S.H.I.E.L.D., Fantastic Four, and then a small crate with T-Mex on it. So uh, I guess they don't have quite as many uh, collectibles as the rest of the Marvel Universe. Now, among the, uh, you know, the goodies here, we've got a sentinel head. Looks pretty wrecked. We got a giant bell, which might be covered with uh, webbing. 
I don't know. Maybe it's just been there a while. Maybe it's cobwebs. Uh, Nimrod. Nimrod's there. Okay. <laughs> it's not like we have editors, right? Um, Iron Man armor. A giant number four. Onslaught's armor. Which, uh, I mean, that's a neat little Easter egg, but doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense since uh, I don't think Onslaught was ever a physical thing, but uh, okay. Uh, Dr. Octopus's tentacle. Mojo's scorpion seat thingy. Modok's weird seat thingy. Uh, a sword either leaning against or plunged through a Golden Age-style Captain America shield, a Taskmaster's shield, a Thor's hammer-looking thing, some Ultron parts, Wolverine's Weapon X helmet, some pumpkin bombs, I think Ares's helmet, Luke Cage's tiara, Shaka's gloves, World War Hulk's spiked shoulder pad gimmick, and Dracula's coffin. Okay. I mean... Uh, Okay. Anyway, Wolverine fights off a gaggle of guards while Maverick sets fire to the gaggle of goods. Wolverine monologues over this, not understanding why anybody would want to have all this stuff. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I think uh, I'm being personally attacked here. Now, he thinks for a moment about whether or not all this history ought to be burned before ultimately deciding that it should. He doesn't even peek into the Team Xbox. He doesn't care. I mean, it's already on fire, so it's not like a whole heck of a lot he could have done here at this point, even if he wanted to. Next up, an info page. It's the X-Factor logbook, and in it, Wolverine is petitioning for a full review of his resurrection log. Now, he'd really like to know where this extra severed arm might have come from, and I think that's a pretty good question to ask. Next stop, back in comics, we're in Krakoa. Maverick and Wolverine are hanging out, and Maverick admits that it uh, doesn't seem like all that bad a place to live, but still, it's just not for him. Now, it's got to be said here that Maverick was depowered on M-Day. Wolverine suggests that the Five can make Maverick whole again by, you know, I guess killing and resurrecting him, and Maverick ain't cool with that. He even says, like, what's the price? I gotta join the cult? And, uh, I mean... It's a fair enough point, isn't it? He leaves. He and Wolverine appear to be on good terms, and there's an open door on both ends if the other would like to change things up a bit. Uh, Wolverine's always welcome to join the Mercs, and Maverick is always welcome to live on Krakoa. We wrap up at a coffee house in New York City where Dolores What's-A-Face has arranged a meeting with... Maverick. She wants to hire him, but it's not entirely clear for what... Next episode, uh, we're going back into, or out of, the vault in the next issue of the flagship book, X-Men. But for right now, let's try to think of some things to say about this issue of Wolverine. Um, I can't help but to think that uh, we're treading a little bit of water here uh, to kill time before the Hellfire Gala. This just didn't feel like it needed this uh, this extra issue. As much as I've enjoyed this little arc here, and this wasn't a bad issue at all, just felt a little bit oddly paced, I guess. I don't know, it feels like uh, the first two issues were quite heavily decompressed, where this one was just like really, really just punchy action just to get the story done here. Um, and uh, going back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the episode here, um, it's weird that uh, so many of our stories are taking place either in Otherworld or Madripoor. Um, and I know I've railed quite often about Otherworld. It's probably um, it's probably quite annoying to listen to me complain about Otherworld all the time. But uh, part of me feels like this 
these sort of stories are the only ones that the creators feel uh, safe writing because I'm not sure how much they know about the direction of this run. Um, or they do know what the direction of the run is and know what they can't do. So instead of getting more Krakoa or just classic X-Men-based stories here, we're stuck treading water in Otherworld or constantly dealing with Madripoor. And it's funny, anytime I think about Madripoor, I think about something that may or may not be true, but it was accepted as like common knowledge back in my Usenet days. And we heard that uh, Chris Claremont had trepidation about, you know, spreading the X line too thin here. He wasn't keen on doing spinoffs here. And uh, each time he was, you know, told that the line was expanding, he would uh, put up a fuss until they told him, you know, either you do it or get someone else to do it. And then he would be like, okay, well, these are, you know, this is my little corner of this universe. So he would want to maintain as much control of it as possible. But I remember reading that, uh, and I mean, again, this could be true, this could be false, this could be a little bit of either, uh, but it was accepted as common knowledge back in the uh, prehistorical days of the, uh, the BBS boards on the internet. That uh, Claremont didn't want to do a Wolverine solo And so when he was told, well, there's going to be one um, He decided to set it in Madripoor Because he thought it would be a place that the readers wouldn't care about And uh, again, maybe true, maybe false But it was just like what was going around on the internet And uh, it's kind of tainted my opinion of Madripoor Um, I would say for better or for worse, but no, it's definitely for worse So anytime I see a story in Madripoor, I always just... I always just think it doesn't matter quite as much. So now seeing, you know, just how many books are dealing with Madripoor regularly, and I mean, we've got like a couple issues of the Black Cat ongoing series that uh, has Wolverine uh, as Patch in Madripoor that we'll be covering a little down the line here. So it's like, how many books do we need in Madripoor every month? I guess just about as many as we need for uh, for Otherworld. Uh, I don't know. It just feels like we're stuck treading water uh, doing this until the Hellfire Gala or until, I don't know, until something happens. Uh, that said, I mean, the issue wasn't bad. It wasn't a bad issue. Uh, I am just a little fatigued uh, with Madripoor at the moment. Now, Maverick, his appearance here was interesting. I liked his uh, back and forth with Wolverine about uh, Krakoa being a cult, especially since, I mean, that's something we've brought up Uh for uh, since the beginning, you know, since the first time we saw the resurrection protocols in action, and Storm had them chanting the word "mutant," that was, uh, I think, "cult" was the first word that came to a lot of our minds at that point. So I appreciate it in that regard here. Um, but if we look at it from like the point of view of the six one six citizen or the six one citizen, I don't know. Do they know about this stuff? Like around the world, would Maverick know? That there's a cult-like behavior here Or would he just just assume that this is a mutant government You know, making their own nation I feel like that was kind of a wink to us Like, we get it, because we've seen this cult-like behavior We've we've talked about uh, sort of unexplainable uh, behaviors Um, Things like the Crucible, you know, we, we see those things I don't think the outside world is supposed to see those things which makes it kind of weird when we've got a character like Maverick, who is an outsider. He's depowered. He's been. Uh, he's had his mind wiped for who knows how long. Making a comment like that, I don't know. It just doesn't doesn't totally jive. Uh, I mean, it makes sense because it is what it is. But should he know that? I don't know. I'm sure there's a better way for me to explain this. <laughs> My feelings on this. 
Um, now, I don't know what Dolores' deal is just yet. Um, she is a very complicated character, or at least the nebulous nature in which she's written is kind of complicated. We don't know if she's friend or foe, both or neither. Um, I, I really don't know. I don't know. I hope that this will come around and make sense, because... For all intents and purposes, this is a totally different character than the one who met up with Storm on the subway several uh, months ago. Totally, totally different. Um, maybe her dealing with Storm was to lull the, the X-Men into, or the Kirkoans into a false sense of security, but... I mean, I think we've talked about this before. I'm pretty sure Damien mentioned this. Uh, the entire conversation between Storm and Dolores was facilitated by Emma Frost and the Cuckoos, Right. So if Dolores was untoward in any way, or, you know, hiding some sort of sinister motive, you'd think that some of the more powerful telepaths on the planet would be able to suss that out. I really don't know. I really don't know, and I I think I'm spending way too much time (laughs) thinking about a character that uh, Lord only knows what direction they're going to bring her in. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about the story. Actually, no, we have one more thing to talk about here. Wolverine's memories. I don't know where we stand on that. I could have sworn there was an event, one of the many, many events uh, that Marvel does, that uh, ended with Wolverine getting his full memory back. I don't know if that's changed. I mean, he has died and come back, well, several. I I was going to say he died once, you know, during Death of Wolverine, but no, he's he's died several times since then. Um, But I don't know if that might have changed some of his memories, maybe put some more Swiss cheese holes in it. I really don't know. But if that is the case here, and it seems to be the case because he doesn't remember some aspects of his time with Team X, the Wolverine that I know, (laughs) like the Wolverine I grew up with, would want to know what was in that box. Um, Here he just let it burn. I I don't know. Seems kind of strange. Worth noting, I mean, that that whole scene took place in that warehouse, the merchant's warehouse. Uh, That was a really, really cool piece of business. I loved seeing all the uh, the Marvel collectibles, you know. I, I always love the pages like that. Those are always so much fun to peruse and scan and just uh, see what you can find. Because, uh, I mean, some of the things just, they don't they don't really pop out at you at first, you know. Uh, and I feel like a lot of them were just there as like a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, because, I mean, Nimrod, should Nimrod be there? Uh, I mean, I don't know. Uh, Onslaught's armor. Probably shouldn't be there uh, Dracula's coffin should probably not be there But uh, it actually took me a while uh, As I was looking through this thing Like with my finger Like I was like like doing a cross Like a word search, right? And uh, and it took a few scans with my finger To find the, the Dracula's coffin There's like, oh, there's a purple coffin With a D on it I mean, you'd think it might get a mention Since we're dealing with the Vampire Nation stuff But whatever <laughs> Um Really, really cool-looking page, though. Uh, or a couple of pages there. I thought that was really neat. Uh, Adam Cubitt still, you know, puts in fantastic work here. Uh, overall, I'd say that this little uh, Legacy House arc has probably been the strongest uh, arc of this volume of Wolverine so far. And I hope we get more like it. Um, unfortunately, I do think we are going back to the vampire stuff for at least a handful of issues, so... We will take it as we uh, as we get it, I suppose. But I uh, think that's all I got to say about this issue. But before we cut out of here, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got one letter from our friend Evan. He's talking about Marauders number 17. He says, The Crucible is back and it's pretty mundane. 
I have the same reservations you do about Storm killing someone to do them a solid, and the, about the audience being cool with it. The Crucible is a good storytelling element, but a bad cultural practice. And yeah, um, our friend Damien had uh, made some comments about this issue, and uh, brought me around to his um, opinion on you know the value of this issue and the and the uh, the poignance of the issue and how it celebrates the past and how it. Uh, it just feels very natural, but I, like I said then, um, I still, it still feels weird that Storm willingly murdered somebody. That's a toughie. I mean, I know she did it to, you know, because Callisto was going to die anyway. She was going to find someone to kill her, and uh, I don't know. It just, it still seems, it still seems weird to me. Evan continues, unlike you, I'm not going to be able to pronounce whatever Silver Samurai calls the Crucible Killers. I don't even remember the word he used. Uh, so I propose the title be either Executioner or Crucibly. <laughs> well, Executioner's already been taken, so I think we'll go with Crucibly. I think that'll work just fine. Uh, Evan continues. As for the timing of the resurrection cue, I think the answer is that it's determined by the needs of the story. Kind of like how Matlock and other TV attorneys can go through a whole murder trial in a single episode. We needed to see Callisto in this issue to complete the, that part of the story, so she's back. But if the writers can come up with the in-story reason for the delays and rush jobs, that's a good thing. And yeah, I don't know. I know that. Uh, I think the only um, like cut and dry that we know about this is uh, is members of X Force, right? Uh, and members of X Force because we've seen Quentin Quire come back over a hundred times, I think, at this point. So. Members of X-Force come back. <laughs> that much we know. They jumped the line here. We saw Siren come back uh, very quickly. She died twice within a week and was brought back both times pretty quick. So I think you hit the nail on the head here. It's whatever, whatever the story needs is what it's going to be. If we need Professor X to be dead for a couple issues to build suspense, he'll be dead for a couple issues to, to build suspense. Um, I think, yeah, I think you're right on target there. Evan continues, as for Harry Leland's delay, other than the fact that no one cares, maybe he died before they had a good backup of him. That's the only reason I can think of for Thunderbird not being brought back. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. Then again, we have Petra and Sway, so that explanation doesn't really work. Maybe Professor X was updating Cerebro software when John Proudstar hitched a ride on Count Nefaria's plane. Well, I can answer that one, I think. At least there's the uh, the leading theory here, and I think it came up in the... Um, oh, boy, what were they called early, early, early on the run, uh, in this run? Uh, Sinister Secrets? Where we'd get like these... Uh, and that's something we probably should revisit to see if uh, see if it all played out. I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to make a note of that so we can go through the Sinister Secrets again and see, see what, what happened and what might not have happened. Um... During the Sinister Secrets, very, very early on, there was a mention that uh, Sinister, like, has John Proudstar's DNA in him. And I remember there was, like, a, a very um, interesting bit of lore derived from a coloring error. Um, I believe it was in—it might have been in X-Men 94, the first issue with the new team. Uh, the first ongoing issue with the new team, that is. Where, in a single panel— uh, Thunderbird's boots were red And uh, Sinister mentioned something about red boots In one of his Sinister secrets And I think a lot of people connected the dots I mean, people who are 
much more vigilant and perceptive than I am because this is not something I would have ever picked up. I'm not even sure if I've ever read X-Men 94 in color. I know the first time I read it was in an Essentials. I don't own the issue, so I'm assuming I've only ever read it in the Essentials. So this would have been lost on me, even if I was a perceptive type, which I'm not. But uh, I remember hearing that uh, that Sinister has Thunderbird's DNA in him, so maybe Thunderbird can't be brought back because that would sort of kind of be a duplicate, which, I mean, that might uh, invite some more clone questions like we've been asking uh, for several of our uh, weird duplicate situations to this point. So I think that's why Thunderbird ain't back yet. Uh, Harry Leland, I... I really don't know why he isn't back. Um, seems like he would have been ripe for resurrection, uh, given the new circumstances here. I mean, he was part of one of the more seminal X-Men stories in history. Um, we're still dealing with Hellfire stuff now. It, you know, it would stand to reason that he would be back here. It's odd that he isn't here, unless there is there are plans for him. I don't know. I know we... In Marauders, where it's been hinted that uh, Shinobi Shaw might actually be Harry Leland's son, and I I don't think this is the first time that uh, possibility has come up. So perhaps they are building to something here, and when he do- when and if he does come back, there'll be a, uh, you know, a pretty big reveal, or at least a, uh, a hellfire schism of sorts, as, as if there isn't already one. But thank you so much for writing in, Evan. That was a very complicated issue. Uh, Marauders number 17 here, a very uh, divisive issue, a very very thought-provoking issue. I've seen opinions um, running the gamut on this issue. Uh, Some folks love it. Some folks are just really turned off by it. Some folks are kind of in the middle. Some folks, like me, are just kind of confused with their own thoughts on the issue. But uh, thank you so much for sharing yours. Now, if anyone out there would like to share their thoughts, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. There's also an Instagram I haven't done anything on yet, 90s X-Men. Uh, you can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook, now 50 members strong. I hope I didn't just jinx anything there. Uh, The group is 90s X-Men on Facebook. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. We're available anywhere you find noise. But that'll do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing a little bit of your time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 177 of X-Lapsed. Uh, and I just got back from the comic store here. It's weird. I haven't been like a regular Wednesday Wednesday warrior. Is that what we call ourselves or used to call ourselves? I don't know. I haven't been one of those in quite a long time since I've been with, uh, I've been with DCBS for, boy, um, I want to say a decade at this point. Yeah, I started right around the time of the New 52, which reminds me that it's been a decade since the New 52. Where the hell did my life go? Anyway, I went there because today Marvel released a uh, free preview, or a, uh, I think they call it a guidebook for the Hellfire Gala uh, event. And, uh, you know, you never know what to expect when you get like a little freebie. Sometimes it's just a little pamphlet. Sometimes it's just, you know, the the most... Uh, Blatant and transparent advertisement um, Other times they give you a whole grip of information And here, I, I haven't had a chance to actually sit down with it But I did flip through it a few times here And uh, this thing looks like it's full of information um, It's a, it's also a, quite a thick little package uh, Very nice to, uh, to see something like this I don't know if we'll uh, dedicate an entire episode to the guidebook um, We'll have to you know take a look at it first and see if... Uh, See exactly what's what here. Uh, if anybody out there has taken a look at this, uh, let me know if you want us to uh, dedicate an entire episode to it. And if you don't have it, uh, well, there's no reason not to get it. It's free. So if you're in the comic shop, it'll probably be on the counter. You just pick it up and uh, maybe we'll talk about it uh, in and of itself uh, somewhere down the line. But uh, today we have kind of a special episode. I mean, aren't they all? But uh, we are going to be introducing a brand new title and some brand new characters. Makes me remember how when we started this, I was talking about like, oh, this is wave one and wave two. I don't even know what wave we're on now. I'm not sure if this would be part of the previous wave or starting its own wave. But uh, today, we finally meet the Children of the Atom. And of course, that'll be in Children of the Atom number one, which has a May 2021 cover date. The story is called Uncanny. Written by Vida Ayala with art by Bernard Chang. Colors Marcelo Maiolo. Letters VCs Travis Lanham. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Andrews Belastaros. Robinson White Sabalski. Cover price $5 because this is a number one. And this one went on sale March 10th of 2021. This is. This kind of kicked off my Wednesday warrior-ness here because uh, DCBS wouldn't let me order this book because it was. Uh, Cancelled and resolicited like 75 times this past year. So I went out and I bought it. And then in my next uh, DCBS shipment, it was in there too. So I've got two of these. Uh, if anybody wants a copy, a, a pristine copy, uh, probably a 12.3 grade uh, at, at worst uh, copy of Children of the Atom Number 1, just uh, let me know. Now we open with Hell's Bells in the midst of an armored car robbery. Now, you might be asking yourself, uh, what in the hell are the Bells that we're talking about here? Well, they were a group of baddies from the middle portion of Peter David's X-Factor run back in the, uh, you know, 1991, 1992. And I want to say the first time I ever heard of them, 
I think it was an, a line item in a wizard price guide where it, you know, showed the, you know, the issue and said it was their first appearance. And uh, it was before I went back and collected all those issues. Now, they were three mutants named Flambe, Vague, and Tremolo. They were all depowered after M-Day, which is why they're all using real weapons at this point. The baddies are then confronted by our titular heroes. Though, I guess in fairness, they never do refer to themselves as the Children of the Atom, but uh, that's what we're going to be calling them. Uh, Now, narration comes to us from Beatrice Bartholomew, or Buddy for short. She is Cyclops' lass. She discusses how she's always felt kind of different, but feels as though she's found her people in the X-Men. And this uh, feels a little bit meta to me. Um, kind of playing with the established X-Fan lore, you know, how X-Fans are um, kind of outcasts, right? And we're all, we're all a little bit different, and we want to find somewhere we can belong. So I feel like maybe we're uh, tugging on some meta strings here. I could just be reading too much into it, or... Possibly projecting, who knows From here, double page spread of Roll, Call, and Cred We got five brand new characters We got Cherub, Marvel Guy, Cyclops Lass, Gimmick, and Daycrawler From here, we get like a half dozen pages of fight scene And, well, it's it's kind of all over the place Uh, I mean, it looks nice I mean, Bernard Chang is a, a wonderfully talented artist here And everything looks wonderful But it's just that we're dealing with a bunch of unfamiliar characters jumbled all over the place here. We've got these new characters. We've got the Hell's Bells who, I mean, could could anybody point those those three out of a lineup? I don't think so. And I may, maybe, maybe the confusion might be intentional, but I wouldn't bet on it. Now, Hell's Bells comment that they look like they're fighting kids in Halloween costumes, which is a fair point. Uh, These uh, costumes are very evocative of an X-Men fan's OC, or original character. Please don't steal. We got Daycrawler, who is, duh, our Nightcrawler alike, and he bamfs around a whole bunch. He's wearing a black and red take on Nightcrawler's, like, classic costume, and he's got a motocross-looking helmet covering his face. Worth noting that the costume makes it appear as though he has a tail, and also Nightcrawler's hands and feet, so like the two-toed feet and stuff like that. We got Cyclops Lass, who delivers an optic blast, but it looks as though she has to press a button on her visor in order to do so, which, back in the long ago, Cyclops himself had to do as well, when the artists and writers remembered, anyway. But I feel like this is something we're supposed to be noticing, you know, noticing that she's doing something to trigger this, uh, this optic beam, We're going to talk a lot more about that later. Anyway, Cyclops Lass is the Cyclops-looking girl, uh, who's wearing a riff on the Jim Lee Volume 2 era Cyclops costume. You know, the one with all the belts and whatnot. A gimmick hurls what looks like charged pins at the bad guys, and she would appear to be cosplaying as Gambit. She's wearing almost exactly his original outfit, trench coat, pink shirt, stuff like that. Cherub is our archangel-alike, uh... And not Angel, Archangel. Now, he's got these odd, like, see-through wings of light, kinda? And he's dressed in a very late 80s, early 90s era Archangel costume. He, too, is wearing a helmet. And he would appear to be, like, the most matter-of-fact of of this crew. Uh, The rest of the team seems like they're having fun. Like, this is, like, an adventure for them. This is what they've wanted to do, whereas... He is a little bit more stoic. He sees this as a more serious mission where there are things that uh, could be lost here. 
Finally, we've got Marvel Guy, who, when I first saw him on the cover and in some of the the hype materials here, I thought he was going to be a take on Beast, because he is a, a burly fellow. But, I mean, his name is Marvel Guy, and it looks like he might actually be a riff on Jean Grey, though maybe he's both, who knows. Uh, he doesn't do all that much during the actual battle until the very end, where he uses his psychic suggestion to shut down the Hell's Bells, like puts him to sleep. We learn here that Daycrawler is his actual brother as well. Says little brother later on they're going to say something about twins. That's a little bit confusing. I don't know if they're talking about these two being twins or another set of twins, but we'll, we'll get there. We're not going to talk much about it, but we'll get there. Now our kids celebrate the fact that they won their first battle. Then, they all put their hands on Daycrawler's shoulders so he can bamf them all out of there. Right here, we go to an info page, and it's a forum page from Mutants Unmuted. Which, jeez, I, I want to say we haven't seen this since, like, the very early days of Dawn of X Excalibur, where uh, Richter was uh, surfing the web uh, to learn a little bit more about uh, his change in powers. Now, this is sort of like an old-school BBS-style wiki entry, and it's all about the Hell's Bells. It uh, looks like this is just being added to this database here, and the author of this post is listed as Archivist X. And uh, we'll find out who that is before the, the end of this issue. We resume with our children down some alley somewhere, where they talk about how well this mission went. Then, Pixie, Magma, and Maggot show up? I think a, a certain a certain Mr. Bevins is going to be very, very happy to hear that. We got Maggot! A Maggot appearance. Now, the kids refer to these three as the X-Men. Which, I mean, do I even need to say that there are no X-Men right now again? I mean, I think I say that like every other episode. Also, come on, these three? X-Men nowadays? Eh, oh, well. Our C and D listers congratulate the kids on a job well done. And the kids are totally fanboy and fangirling out here. Which makes sense, considering what big fans they are of the X-Men, that, you know, even some of the less popular characters ought to get a pop out of them. Now, after the Mutual Admiration Society simmers down a bit, Magma asks why they aren't living on Krakoa, and then asks if they'd heard the call. Now, of course, that call is from Hoxpox, where Xavier invited all mutants home to Krakoa. Maggot suggests that maybe they just hang out at Hellfire Bay. And I mean, aren't has, hasn't it been established that there's like 200,000 mutants living on Krakoa? It might stand to reason that maybe Magma just hasn't seen these five before? I don't know. Cyclops last hesitates before revealing that, of course, they heard the call. It's just that they got some stuff they need to attend to before they leave, right? They got school. Uh, Magma's like, hey, wait a second. We could just beam all that knowledge that you need into your head. So school is just a waste of time. You can come home with us now. Cyclops last encounters with, well, you know, we've, we've got families and stuff. And Magma's like, okay, I get it. We're never going to force you to come to Krakoa, but the door's always open. And heck, you know, you don't got to live there to visit, so how about we go visit? Just then, sirens begin to sound, and the police are headed toward the fight site. And since we're living in a post-Kamala's Law Marvel universe, as we discussed when we looked at Champions, and we'll discuss again when we look at Power Pack, teenage heroes have been banned. Magma invites the children through the portal to show them around Krakoa, but our kids don't follow. Instead, they bamf away. Scene shift to Summer House on the moon. 
We've got Wolverine, Cyclops, Nightcrawler, Storm, and Jean all shooting pool, drinking beer, and talking about these new young mutants. Logan is adamant, no pun intended, that they go fetch the kids and bring them home. Cyclops reminds them that they can't do that, because that's not what Krakoa is all about. Jean states that Pixie had reported in that the kids had their reasons for not coming, and maybe we ought to respect them. Logan posits that uh, maybe they don't realize that they're welcome, you know? And Scott's all, come on, of course they know. Aurora suggests that they try and speak with them again. You know, things are tough for mutants and young heroes overall at this point. And even if they decide not to come, at least they'll know that they have, you know, Krakoa's support. Jean says that she tried tracking them down using Cerebro. But, wait for it, they're not showing up in any scans. Scott then asks, how could that, how could that ever be possible? Which totally disregards the obvious. You know, like, maybe that these kids aren't mutants. I hope they're not inhumans, but, uh... Maybe they're not, they're not mutants. Nightcrawler notes that there's a psychic among them and suggests that perhaps they're blocking Cerebro. Which, I mean, if an inexperienced kid can block Cerebro, then really, who couldn't? That's not really great. Wolverine mentions that these kids are acting recklessly. Storm agrees and brings up the point that right now they don't even know if these kids could get resurrected because, you know, there's no... Cerebro's got nothing on them, so they got no backups. Storm would really like the opportunity to go chat with them. Cyclops is a bit flustered, worried that Storm is talking about maybe kidnapping them. To which Jean's like, hey, calm down, Scott. It doesn't have to be one extreme or the other here. There, There is some middle ground here. Storm says she will speak with the young X-Men. Which, there are no X-Men right now. And also, Young X-Men was a horrendously dull comic book back in the long ago that I don't want to be reminded of. Next up, a scene shift to Corbeau Prep in Brooklyn. Now, I'm not sure if this school is named after a longtime friend and associate of the X-Men, Peter Corbeau, though we might assume that it is. We're in the gym where the Corbeau Pigeons basketball team are practicing. Beatrice, Cyclops Lass, and Carmen, Gimmick, are in the stands chatting. We find out here that uh, Carmen has some tickets to a Dazzler concert and wants to bring Beatrice with her. This discussion is overheard by some, uh... Well, straw man bigoted boys who warn them that uh, Dazzler is, you know, a mutant. Yeah, welcome to 19 friggin' 82, you dicks. Um, the girls are accused of being muty lovers and perhaps even mutants themselves. Well, they might wish they were, I mean, for all we know. The boys then threaten them with physical violence before the coach overhears this and throws them out. I do want to note that we are in a gaggle of nine-panel grid pages here. You know how much I love those. Earlier, we had some pages like this uh, that were supposed to be read from left to right all the way across two pages, if, if I'm explaining that uh, in a way that's easy to understand. It's, it's melding my mind just trying to put, put it into words here. But like you start on one side of the page, you go to the other, and then you continue on the adjoining page. Here, it's not initially clear which direction we're supposed to be reading them in. But it's, uh, it actually turns out to be the more traditional, you know, three across, then down, three across, then down, three across, then next page. Um, this is likely much more apparent when you're reading the digital version of the book, I would guess. Um, and we're going to talk a bit about the digital version in just a little bit. So, Carmen remarks that she's designing an outfit for the concert in order to honor the sound queen, Dazzler. 
We figure out here that she's the one designing the Kota costumes. Uh, she's still tweaking the designs a bit. She says she has to fix the twins' overalls, which I don't know if that means that there's a pair of twins in her family who she uh, sews and darns for, or if Marvel Guy and Daycrawler are actually twins, despite, you know, one being massive and one being tiny. You know, I mean, I guess they're just not identical if that's the case. She also fixed Cyclops' lass's visor so it wouldn't slip. Uh, Beatrice notes that Gabe's shoulder guards looked great as well. Now, Gabe is cherub, so maybe those shoulder guards have something to do with his wings. I really don't know. We are, we are building a mystery here. We are building a mystery. They talk a bit about Mutants Unmuted, and it's made clear here that Buddy is Archivist X. Carmen asks when she finds the time to sleep. She also suggests that, uh, you know, nobody uses the resource that she's spilling all of her time into anyway, which <clears throat> I feel personally attacked. I mean, that hit me where it hurts here. Uh, <laughs> a big part of what I do, uh, with the prolificity in which I do it, is, uh, is assuaged by the belief, uh, as misguided as it might be, that I'm building a resource. You know, things at Chris's on Infinite Earths, even things here at X-Labs. It's all about building a resource that will be here for people to check out at any point and uh, maybe get something out of. And, yeah, like, uh, like Carmen says, uh, a lot of people don't care about it, as much as I try to tell myself otherwise. Now, at this point, Gabe, or Cherub, he walks onto the basketball court, and Buddy goes a bit fugy. Seems she's got the hot pants for him. Carmen asks if she's okay, then hesitates a bit before referring to her as her best friend, which is kind of weird. So Buddy's got the hot pants for Gabe, but she's not going to pursue it because she sees he and Carmen as having some sort of far deeper connection. Let's go down to the court. We meet a new character, and it's a dude named Cole. We learn that he nearly died not too long ago, but he's back now, and seemingly better than ever. He almost seems superhuman. Perhaps he's a mutant. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Next up, an info page. It's more Mutants Unmuted, and we see that there's a link to a video of Wolverine fighting Ghost Rider, which... Crud, does that mean I gotta track down an issue of Ghost Rider? Uh. There's also a video of Dazzler and Jumbo Carnation hanging out in Tribeca, because why not? There's some forum posts here about how the Krakoan gates work. How you gotta be a mutant, or Franklin Richards, I suppose, otherwise you just pass right through, not going anywhere. Okay, let's tangent for just a minute. Got a question I want to ask here that might be the most stupid question in the world, but it's one that hit me really hard when I was reading this info page here. Has there ever been another era of X-Men comics that have been so... What's the opposite of timeless or evergreen? I, I mean, if you read any X-Book from this era, anything from tw 2019 till whenever this, uh, this Krakoan era ends, you almost need to take a prerequisite course to understand it all. Now, people have often said, I mean, I've been an X-Men fan for 30 years, and I've always heard people go, ah, oh, man, I can never get into the X-Men. How can an outsider ever hope to get in? And I never saw it as being all that labyrinthine. Uh, and now, here we are with the, uh, the Hoxpox era, where I've read every page of everything that's come out to this point and have talked, <laughs> I've spent hundreds of hours talking about it, and here I am agreeing with these people, where it's like, you know what, if you tried coming into these books now, 
Lord help you. I don't know. You'd have to read everything. You you couldn't just pick up this issue, right? This is an this is an issue number one. You couldn't just pick this up fresh, or you couldn't. In theory, you might not be able to like just revisit this book somewhere down the line, like ten years from now. If I come back to Children of the Atom number one, I'm not going to have any of the uh, gestalty context to understand the finer points of it. I don't. I, like here, you need to know what the gates are, right? I mean, it's not a hard thing to under, hard thing to understand, but it's like, it's a big deal. Um, it's I don't know. It's kind of weird. I, I do wonder how time will wind up treating this era. I wonder how we will remember it. Though I, I guess I mean, the head of X still has a bit of a cult personality to him, so it'll probably be fine. From here, we jump back into comics. It's the middle of the night, and it looks as though our heroes are preparing to finally head off to the mutant homeland. Buddy leaves her father, who has raised her and has always supported her. She justifies leaving by suggesting that, uh, you know, this is what he would want for her to do. The Kotas meet in front of her house, they hop on the L train, and then arrive at the Coney Island Krakoan Gate, which is under the boardwalk. They change into their X-Men cosplay costumes and step through the portal. We get a weird page with, uh, you know, like some shattering effect. And then they wind up stepping out the other side. Looks like they can't use it. Or can they? Hmm. I mentioned the digital version a little earlier here. Here's something weird for you. If you're not aware, and if you're listening to the show, you're probably already aware. It would appear as though the print and digital versions of this issue have a different final page. Uh, the digital version shows the characters sort of... It almost looks like an amalgamated Krakoa Coney Island. Like I told you, they're under the boardwalk, right? Where there are beams, you know, it's like a big long deck uh, over the water. But instead of beams, they're trees, you know? Uh, so it looks like they're in like a lush greenery where they're, I mean, they're on a Brooklyn beach. So there's, there's no, you know, big, you know, sprawling trees here, no foliage. But the Cyclone roller coaster is still visible in the background. I don't know if this is symbolic of these uh, characters being something not quite human and also not quite mutant. I really haven't the fog- foggiest here, and uh, I guess we're going to have to wait until next time or the time after that to get some answers. But I uh, I guess I'm intrigued. I think I'm more intrigued by why uh, why they changed the page here. The, the, the print page, if you're looking at the print version here, it's very clear, at least to me, that they just stepped through the gate. They step through it, they're still in Coney Island, it just looks like they're on the other side of the gate. The digital one, though, it's a little bit more stylized and a little bit more confusing. It has the same dialogue, it's just the picture, the full-page spread is different is all. But that's where we leave this uh, giant-sized issue. Uh, Next time, we're going to be talking about X-Factor number 8. We're going to find out what's haunting the Boneyard, so looking forward to that. But for now, let's talk about the Kotas. This is a book that is a, uh, a lesson in not judging a book by its cover here, because looking at this, I assumed that this book was going to introduce the concept of the chimeras to the current year Marvel Universe, right? I mean, these characters, at first blush, would appear to be amalgamations or flat-out copies of established mutants. Of course, it is a bit more complicated than all that. Uh, our friend Evan Bevins actually wrote a piece recently talking about the uh, the all-new, all-deadly X-Men from, uh, I think it was like 1997, 1998-ish. It was after Operation Zero Tolerance. Um, 
It was also the story that I believe brought back uh, Kitty, Colossus, and Kurt to the X-Men from Excalibur as, a, as that book had just been canceled. There we met, a, we met like six or seven characters here. I'm trying to pull up the list here. I'm trying to vamp as I do this here. And they looked like amalgamated versions of uh, established characters, which is something that Evan uh, pointed out in his, uh, in his blog post. And upon checking that out, I was instantly reminded of the cover to Children of the Atom, number one here, where it's like, okay, these characters look very familiar. I mean, Cyclops Lass is basically, you know, wearing the Jim Lee Cyclops costume, right? It's very, very similar. Uh, of course, you know, like I said, it's a bit more complicated than all that. So let's theorize. It's kind of what we do here uh, fairly often. So let's see what we can break this down and see if we can make some uh, outlandish theories. <laughs> um, now, let's start with the idea that these kids are human, okay? How would they be able to do the things that they do? We've seen them in action here. Uh, Daycrawler is bamfing. You know, we have optic beams. We have a kid who can fly. We got gimmick charging things like Gambit does. How could they do this? Surely Carmen, as the seamstress or costume design, designer hobbyist, she might have the ability to put an optic beam blaster into a costume visor, right? I mean, don't know where she'd get it from. I don't know that she'd be able to create a teleportation device to put into Daycrawler's gear. I mean, I'm just freestyling here. Um, so how could they have access to this tech? Well, let's assume for a moment that it is tech, that these aren't powers, that this is technology. Now, it's kind of a deep cut, but I am reminded of uh, the post-House of M, post-Civil War initiative-era New Warriors team. Now, this is a team that was largely comprised of depowered mutants who were wearing suits that gave them powers. They weren't the same powers that they would have here, but they were powered. These suits had, gave them powers. We had characters like Jubilee, Chamber, Beak, Wind Dancer, Angel Salvador, Stacy X, some others too, who were put into these suits or who wore these suits and, uh, and were able to exhibit powers. You know, Jubilee went by the codename like Wandra, I think. And, uh, you know, she didn't have her path paths. It was a different thing. But, the, the, I mean, the point I'm getting to here is that she was powered. So could it be that our Kota kids have gotten a hold of some of uh, this sort of tech? You know, uh, they do idolize the X-Men, at least Buddy seems to, so it might stand to reason that they would pursue something like this or manage to find it. Um, let's go another route, though. Let's say it's not tech. Let's say it's something else. Does anybody remember MGH? It's another semi-deep cut. Uh, this is mutant growth hormone. This was a concept that was also thrust into the spotlight around the time of Civil War. I want to say Nitro, the fellow who kicked like the whole Civil War thing off by blowing up a bus in a park in Stamford, Connecticut during a fight with the New Warriors, I think he was high on MGH to amplify his powers at that point, which made it so he was able to boom bigger, I guess. Uh, MGH would become something of a street drug after that, which would give ordinary humans mutant powers after use. Could that be what we got here? I really don't know. I guess what I'm getting at here is that the fact that we're asking questions is a good thing. You know, we certainly shouldn't be expecting all the answers in the very first issue of a mystery-based series here. I think when we looked at a uh, Marvel Previews 
I think it might be the one for uh, June of this year, which we'll be talking about at length uh, at some point next week on the program. I think there is a line in the Children of the Atom issue that says uh, that we find out who and uh, and what they are. So we're not going to have to wait long. We're not going to have to wait long here. I'm just hoping uh, that they are not inhumans because I really don't want to see that. I don't have a whole heck of a lot to say about the characters themselves yet. We don't know them well enough to really say much. I do uh, sympathize with uh, with Buddy being quite enamored with the X-Men, uh, obsessed with the X-Men and maintaining a database that nobody cares about in order to, uh, I don't know, show her fandom or just add to the lore herself or just do something to make herself feel a little bit closer to this team and these people who she uh, who she idolizes here. I, I like that as a uh, character beat. Um, we see, I think a lot of the new characters that we see are of the fanboy, fangirl variety. I think those are the new point of view characters. I mean, we've seen it with uh, with Ms. Marvel, you know, where she's kind of just like really a huge fan of basically every character she sees. Um, I think uh, I think Naomi is like that over in DC. It's yeah, it's it's a trope now. It's just uh, I guess it's a sign of the times. But the way they're doing it with Buddy here is a bit different. She's actually creating something. Right, This database that nobody cares about She's creating it She's pouring her heart into it She's pouring her time into it And uh, it's all in the name of uh, of her fandom Of her obsession And uh, I, I really like that angle uh, Speaking of her obsession here uh, The X-Men scene or I, I, I did it myself I called them the X-Men They're not the X-Men yet uh, The scene at Summer House Was um, maybe a page or three too long um, Felt like they were talking in circles there we have characters raising the same points over and over again, and uh, I don't think we needed that many pages. We also have uh, Cyclops looking like kind of an idiot, <laughs> not realizing not nobody is suggesting that the fact that Cerebro can't scan these children as a concern or as proof uh, that maybe they're not what they're portraying themselves to be. I don't know. It just seems a little bit weird, um, but. You know, we're, we're, we're laying foundation here. And sometimes that's a, uh, that's a bumpy ride. I have enough faith in uh, Vita Ayala here from their work in uh, New Mutants, which I absolutely adore, that this will come around and be a uh, satisfying experience. I don't know that I want it to be an ongoing, um, because we have way, way, way too many of those in the X-Men universe right now. But, uh, hey, you know, I guess it's a... It's a case of famine to feast, back to famine again for the X-Fans, so I guess we should just enjoy what we have while we have it. But uh, that's all I really have to say about this issue here. I look forward to hearing uh, your guys' thoughts on uh, this brave new team and uh, how they uh, made a splash in the Marvel Universe here today. Now, speaking of hearing from people, we got some mail today. We're going to check in with Damien first, who's talking about X-Force number 16. He says, I was, I was worried I'd be time-traveling with my comments as I'm waiting for Marvel Unlimited to get to the books that I'm not buying, and it's getting even worse, because Marvel Unlimited is not releasing comics in publication order anymore. What the hell, Marvel Unlimited? That <laughs> seems very, very counterproductive, doesn't it? Never worry about time-traveling. I mean, the show ain't going anywhere. It'll always be here, and I always love hearing from you, so we'll always discuss whatever you're up to. So that's uh, not a problem at all. But that really stinks that uh, Unlimited's getting all wonky here. I 
Don't know why they would do that. Damien continues, X-Force is generally one of my least favorite books, but this was one of the better issues. Everyone felt in character, and there was an intriguing story. You spoke about the character's trust in Krakoa, but what I found myself thinking was about my trust in the book. I don't know if I can trust Ben Percy to be going anywhere with his good ideas. I remain worried that we'll pick, we'll end up back again with the Russian gangsters, and the possibilities of this issue will remain unaddressed. You never know, right? I don't know where... When did I talk about this? I think it might have been with the Children of the Vault issue of X-Men that we covered um, not too long ago, very recently, where I talked about how it felt like everybody was waiting for Hickman to do something before they could do something on their own. And oh, no, actually, no, I take that back. It was during a one of the books that we had in Madripoor. I think we have, like, Wolverine's in Madripoor right now, Marauder's in Madripoor right now, we got other books in other world, and I mentioned that uh, it seems like everybody who's in the X Brain Trust now is kind of just spinning their wheels and treading water, waiting for this story to go somewhere. So they can't really address things that matter. So we have X Force, this book, where they raise these interesting questions, and they, they've raised interesting questions in X Force before. We had the whole suicide issue. We've had uh, not having your final wishes, uh, your, your resurrection request honored. But then, you know, the the flagship book of the line kind of just drags its feet. We get crossovers. We get all this weird stuff that just makes. X-Force revert to type, where, like you said, it's it's Russian gangsters and Zeno. I mean, we were introduced to Zeno, like, almost two years ago, <laughs> and we don't know anything more about them just yet. I, I feel like there's a lot of this is an exercise in, in wheel spinning here and just trying to do things that don't step on anybody else's feet, and that's, uh, that kind of stinks. Now, Damien continues. I wonder if the design of the underwater tumor is deliberately reminiscent of the monsters called by the summoners in X of Tens, or if that's just part of the visual language of the current era. Maybe when Krakoa and Arako tried to merge, there was some summoner jiggery-pokery. I love that term. Um, you know, I don't know. I think I think it's a thing where uh, Lovecraftian horrors are kind of just like the soup du jour, the villain du jour, the monster du jour. So uh, that's just the style of uh, baddie we're going to get, a style of monster. It's going to be these weird Lovecraftian deals. I think that's kind of what it is here. And I, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I don't know anything from anything, but I feel like what we saw in X of Tens was, was just that. You know, I don't know that there was any rhyme or reason to the shape or form of the, uh, of the monsters. I think it was just like, hey, this looks cool, you know, and it's... And thankfully, there was no one yelling shuggeth, huggeth, fluggeth over it to really drive the point home, right? Um, Damien wraps up with, anyway, until we discover that Arako gave Krakoa an STD. Ugh, make my next last. Well, let's hope if that does happen, they don't devote an entire issue to it, though. Uh, I could certainly see that happening here. Um, maybe it'll be another silent issue. I don't know. But uh, thank you so much, Damien. It's always great to hear from you, whether you're live or Memorex or time traveling, <laughs> whatever case, whatever the case. I love hearing from you, so thank you so much. Next up, we got Evan talking about Cable Number Seven. He says the interruption by the Festival of Swords was unfortunate and awkward, but I think Duggan made the best of it he could, including acknowledging it as Cable moved forward or backward to the previous storyline. 
The fact that he saw Strife and didn't tell anyone reminds me of how a friend of mine described the My Little Pony show that our kids watched. These episodes would only last two minutes if people would just talk to one another. I get Cable feeling responsible for Strife, and maybe he just doesn't want anyone to shut him out of taking him down. Still seems odd, though. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It does seem odd, and it also seems... I don't know. Like I said, when we... I don't remember if it was seven or eight, but... uh, the one where we found out that, like, everybody in the Order of X is a clone of Cable. And it's like, we've seen their faces before and nobody noticed it. Nobody was able to, like, be like, hey, that looks like you, just older. And you're totally right. If uh, Cable would have just told Rachel, like, hey, Strife's back. And then they got the rest of the uh, the crew in on it. I almost called them the X-Men again. and There's no X-Men just yet. But uh, they would have gotten the rest of the crew in and uh, they could have taken they could have taken Strife down probably lickety-split. But, uh, yeah, I think you know, we're, we are definitely headed somewhere. I just, uh, we have an idea of where this book is headed. Uh, we've seen covers to uh, issues 11 and 12, which might draw a line under something. But uh, hey, we'll get there when we get there. Evan continues. I was going to make a snide comment asking why Strife isn't Krakoa's Secretary of the Interior or on the short list to replace Apocalypse on the Quiet Council, given the roles other XX villains are playing. But then the answer occurred to me. He's a clone. Evil is one thing, but clones? I guess Professor X and company still haven't gotten over the whole Ben Riley clone saga thing. Yeah, he t- Charlie took it really hard. He, uh, he uh, gave up the Spider-Man books when they said that Ben Riley was the one true Spider-Man. He wasn't alone, though. A lot of, a lot of us did. So, uh, no, it's a, a great point. And if you're listening to this episode, hopefully you've already read Cable Number 8, where he and Domino, or Domino mostly, just uh, wipes out a whole bunch of Cable clones, which just adds another another layer to the uh, devaluing of clone life here, and how clones are not considered, uh, I guess, equal. They're not considered people. They're not considered mutants. They're not considered really anything, I suppose. Um uh, I think the it's like the Quiet Council is just waiting for the last ones to die so they don't have to bring them back. It's very, very weird. But it is, it is giving us a lot of food for thought here. And uh, I really enjoy that. Evan continues, Speaking of the Quiet Council, how weird is it that Krakoa's government isn't elected, but its team of unsanctioned superheroes is? Yup. <laughs> That's an excellent point. And it's... Such a good point that they almost have to address that, right? They almost have to say something about that, where, I mean, they had to vote for, like you said, the unsanctioned X-Men. You know, a team that is just acting of its own volition, is not empowered. We don't know if they have the same sort of uh, rights as even X-Force. We know that X-Force is, you know, above protocol. We know that X-Factor is is kind of up there, too, because they're kind of uh, vital in the resurrection process at this point. But these X-Men, who knows? Who knows what they're going to be and if they're going to be looked at or viewed the same way as the other X-Teams are or if they're going to be looked at as like a renegade group. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. And that's an excellent point that I really, I think I've thought of it, but I've never put it into words before. And seeing it in words now, that the Quiet Council were a group of people that just said, yeah, it's us. <laughs> you know, it's uh, Xavier's like, I'm assigning these people. And uh, no one had any say in it. So that's a very, very interesting point. Now, Evan wraps up with, 
Well, until the Scarlet Spider gets invited to Krakoa before the Juggernaut, make my next lapsed. And we know that would happen. We know the, the, the Scarlet Spider would do that. Um, it reminds me of an April Fool's gag in the early... Well, I guess not the early days of the internet, but the relatively early days of the internet, probably 1998 or so. I was on, I think it was, uh, I think it's Eric Morels who had like one of the top X-Men fan sites on the internet, maybe the only X-Men fan site at this point. I think it was xfan.net or .com. I wouldn't try that website now because I'm sure it's not that anymore, but... He put up an April Fool's gag, or it was a news item, and I think I think Marvel actually uh, did this news item here. But they discovered that uh, Spider-Man was actually a mutant, because this was back in the day before mutant was a four-letter word. And the folks on the site absolutely lost their minds over it. And it was uh, it was one of those like you couldn't be in between on this one. This was like one extreme or the other. You either loved it because we were getting X we were getting Spider-Man on the X-Men or you absolutely despised it. And the thing of it was is that it was such a good prank because you could totally see Marvel doing it. This is like right after the Clone Saga, like a year removed from the Clone Saga where Peter Parker wasn't Spider-Man anymore. So like the, the rules, they, there weren't any rules. Anything can happen here, and the X-Men were the sales powerhouse. And it would stand to reason, like, hey, we need to give Spider-Man a boost. Let's let's give him an X-Belt. You know, it's. I remember falling for that, and I got excited for it. I was on the side where I was like, oh, cool, we'll have Spider-Man on the X-Men, which, I mean, looking back now is absolutely ridiculous, but at the time, I, I totally fell for it, so... I could totally see Ben Riley showing up on Krakoa, especially before Juggernaut. But thank you so much for writing in, Evan. I really, really appreciate it. Now, if anybody out there would like to write in and be part of the mailbag, I would love for you to do so. You could find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, you can go over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, where right now we're actually talking a little bit about that Hellfire Gala guidebook, sourcebook, whatever they're calling it, that thing, the freebie that you all should go and get. We're talking about it there, and uh, we're sharing images and uh, some theories as well. So having a good time. I hope to see you there. Uh, There's also an Instagram I don't use. It's 90s X-Men. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, which is available anywhere you can find noise and sound on the internet. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to tell a few people. Spread the word, share the share the link, share the show, all that happy, happy stuff. I would really, really appreciate it. But that is where we leave it for today. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.